Well, welcome, everybody. We're back. It's March 2023. I'm here with my fantastic host, Swami, and we are just so excited to be back together again. So excited to be back. March, great month. We have great stuff on tap for the rest of the show. Jan, you ready to dive into a case? I'm ready to dive in. You know, we're in full swing 2023, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say. The case. All right, so I have a case that I'm pretty sure you see pretty much every shift. At least the chief complaint you see pretty much every shift. On my EMR tracker, it says mouth pain. Now, the vital signs are a little bit abnormal. Patient is tachycardic around 113, febrile to 101.2. Jan, I'll be honest with you. Every patient I've seen for the last three months has had a fever and tachycardia. Every single one. But fever, tachycardia, oxygen's good, 100%. Blood pressure's fine, 132 over 85. And when I look at the nurse's note, it says mouth pain, patient appears uncomfortable. So as you are leaving your computer, you're walking over to that room, what's going through your head? All right, mouth pain. I'm figuring it's not throat pain, or they would have said that. So I'm thinking some kind of dental infection. And I have made a mental note of those vitals, specifically the tachycardia and fever, because we do see a lot of mouth pain and dental problems. They don't all have fever in particular. They may be tachycardic because of pain, but the fever is something to note. And I'm hoping it's just a localized dental infection. But of course, here we are talking about it on MRAP. So I'm guessing it's going to be something more. So I'm just hoping I don't see someone drooling with some kind of impending airway disaster. Actually, it was just a localized dental infection, and I sent him over to our dental clinic. (laughs) That's our intro case. Of course not. But, you know, that's what I was kind of hoping going in. I'm like, it's going to just be a simple dental infection. I'll bounce him over to the dental clinic, get this guy taken care of. But when you walk in the room, you know that it's just not what's going on. This is a 40-year-old man. He appears uncomfortable. He's sitting up, and you talked about the drooling. He is tolerating his secretions. There's no respiratory distress, but immediately you look and you're like, wow, that face is pretty swollen. And not just over the dental area, but there's a little bit of swelling kind of underneath the chin. And and we've actually got an image of this in the show notes that people can check out just to see kind of what I walked into. And I think that when the listeners look at that picture, they're probably going to have the oh crap moment that I had when I walked into the room and saw the swelling. The patient has no medical history. They're there with a family member who says, He started with a sore throat a couple of days ago, some dental pain, and then this has progressed over time. And often, Jan, the family will just speak for the patient. I kind of got the feeling this is one of those situations where the family was speaking for the patient because the patient was having a really hard time speaking for their own. So when I look at the patient, again, swelling to that lower face and then the upper neck, and immediately I'm getting a little worried, especially when the patient's family member says, He hasn't really been able to eat or drink anything for the last 24 hours because of this swelling and pain. I do my quick exam. We already talked about that lower face swelling. There's quite a bit of tenderness. I don't feel any crepitus, so that makes me a little bit reassured. And then I ask the patient, why don't you go ahead and open your mouth so I can see inside and see what's going on. And um, well, Jan, the patient can't open their mouth very much. That's kind of the short of the long. It's about two centimeters or so of mouth opening, which means I can't really get much of an exam back there. So based on all of that, what are your management priorities? Oh boy, okay, well, if they can't open their mouth, that sounds like trismus to me. And what is trismus? Trismus means that this infection, which probably started with a tooth, has now gotten into those deeper spaces, those areas of mastication, which are now all seized up and inflamed. So that's not good. There is probably something in there that needs to be drained, but it's not me that's gonna do it. So. I'm probably going to need some imaging and a specialist, but at this point, the airway is obviously my biggest worry. The airway was our biggest worry right away as well. 
even though the patient looked relatively comfortable, their sat was okay, but immediately we're thinking about that. I sent the resident out and said, why don't you go ahead and give ENT a call, oral surgery a call. Let's let them know about this patient. And ENT tells our resident, we'll be there in about 15, 20 minutes. No problem. Clearly, the airway, again, is what we have to think about and address. I want to know about options at this point. And so we want to have kind of a couple of options laid out in front of us. Jen, when you go in and see this and you're thinking about the airway, what are the options that you lay out in front of you? Options for this type of patient include anything from fiber optics, you know, nasotracheal is one approach. You could do an awake sort of sitting up intubation so you could, you know, get a better look and sort of go step by step. But I think what's more important is to really ask whether or not you actually need to do something about it right now, because this is one of those cases where, you know, you may find yourself in a world of trouble and be thinking, looking back, like, did I really have to do that right now? Because it could be quite problematic. And if he's holding his own, which it sounds like he actually is, it might be better to really think this through. I couldn't agree more. You know, we want to rush. We want to take care of these airways. We love doing procedures, but sometimes caution is preferable to rash bravery. And I think we have to keep that in the back of our minds. This patient's got a sat of 100%. He's not tachypnic. He's sitting up, but he's relatively comfortable. He's not tripoding and drooling. So we're not at that stage where we're like, we're going to have to manage this airway right away. And the where I work, I have a surgeon. I have an operating room. So I have that luxury of the backup and saying, you know, if, if we know what's going on here, we figure out quickly what's going on, maybe I can just get the patient up to the operating room without an airway and let them kind of do their thing with all of the backups in place, all of the quote unquote experts ready to go if this patient needed a trach. Because Jen, I'm pretty comfortable intubating. I'm even comfortable criking, not really comfortable doing a trach. And that might be where this patient ends up with a trach. I also don't always have access to fiber optics, which I think, like you said, would be the perfect thing here. With that minimal mouth opening, I can slip a camera in and then put a tube over the fiber optics, but we don't always have that. So when I actually spoke with ENT, I said, you know, when you're coming down, you're going to want to go ahead and bring your fiber optics with you because that's what we kind of need. I don't just need the ENT. I need the device that they have to make sure that we have that on hand if we go to that place. Now, let's say, Jan, that you don't have that backup. Let's say that ENT isn't in-house, anesthesia is not in-house, there's no OR, you're going to have to send this patient somewhere else. And you're thinking, do I really want to put this patient in a transport situation without an airway? If you're in that situation, what is your optimal approach to taking this airway? All right. So, you know, the truth is that once I paralyze this patient, that trismus is going to go away and I'm going to be able to get a decent look. And in my experience with these dental infections, remember that it is a dental infection in origin. So that's really where you're having, that's, the patient has a lot of pain there. There's spasm associated with that. And in this case, a lot of the times, and I've seen a few Ludwigs and et cetera, and, and, and often we don't have to intubate these, which is why I'm saying let's hold off and think about it. But often if you paralyze them, the anatomy may be manageable. You know, unlike in an angioedema case, et cetera, the reason that they're not speaking, it may not be that there's any swelling around the cords at all, that once you get down to where your target is, you can actually get this person intubated. So I would probably go with what I'm most comfortable with. And then, of course, have my plan B, my plan C, you know, and crike would probably be okay in this person. So for me, this is probably going to be an RSI. It might be with ketamine. It would probably be video laryngoscopy, but I'm going to go with what I'm most comfortable with to start. Sometimes we overcomplicate things, Jan, and sometimes the thing you're most comfortable with is the right way to go. And I agree with you. I, I, these patients often do relax the musculature and then they can open once you paralyze them. So that's not a bad way to go. I'm pretty comfortable with fiber optics. So I, I would love to do an awake fiber optic for this patient. I think that would be a totally reasonable way to go as well. But I'll tell you that I'm going to have my paralytic ready to go. 
so that if I have any trouble with that fiber optic intubation, I can switch over pretty quickly. And the patient's swelling really was underneath the chin, but the neck itself looked okay. So I agree with you, crike was always there. So if we had to go down that route, if we had to take the airway, we were good to go. So in the meantime, we do get all of our airway equipment to the bedside. We put this patient into a resuscitation area. We're making our plan for airway while we're waiting for our consultants. What other steps are you taking for management while you're doing that? So, you know, antibiotics for sure, although I'm not delusional in thinking that they actually are going to make any big difference at the moment, but they certainly are indicated. Fluids for sure. You know, with these dental and mouth infections, and it's been said by the family that the oral intake has been pretty limited. So they're usually pretty dry and now potentially septic. So the tank is pretty empty. So I'm going to definitely tank up on fluids pretty quick. I'm not big on steroids. It's a consideration. If the consultant recommended them and they wanted them, I'd probably give it, but also something I don't think that's going to make a big difference in the short term. So for me, fluids are the priority, antibiotics next. Okay. And all that makes sense. And and Jan, we haven't explicitly said what we think we're dealing with here, but we've kind of just been banding around about it. We're worried about Ludwig's angina here. And I think that's what we're most concerned about, but we don't actually have that definitive diagnosis. And in my consultant's defense, they didn't ask me and say, well, where's your imaging? They just said, no, we'll be right down, which is exactly what you want, right? I have a problem. I want you to come right down. No problem. We'll be right down. But we don't really have that definitive diagnosis. And we're going to go to the OR. Our consultants often like to have that definitive diagnosis. And so they asked and said, can we get imaging? Can we get imaging on this patient? And Jen, my CT scan's like 50 feet away. I don't have to send them anywhere to get a scan. I can go with them. But is it a good move to put this person in the scanner or not? Or what are you thinking about before you go to scan? Yeah, my biggest concern with the scan is whether or not this patient can actually lie flat and what that will actually do to the airway, even if they try. So that's what I'm concerned about with the CT. And, you know, you're right. The consultants are often very helpful in these situations, especially those that don't require imaging. So oral surgeons, for example, who were dentists before they were born into surgeons are often more comfortable doing this without imaging, I find, because they were dentists in an office who never had CT scans. So they're usually comfortable kind of coming down and taking a look and even intervening without imaging. But if you're talking about ENT and other specialties, they often want the imaging. And it is a deep space infection that we haven't defined. So I understand the need for imaging. But I think that question of whether or not this patient can or should attempt to lie flat is a big one. I think that that first step is really important. Lie the patient flat, see what happens. If they can't lie flat, they're not going to CT without a secured airway. And then you have to ask the question, do I want to secure the airway here? Do we want to go to the OR to secure that airway? We can get an x-ray at the bedside if we wanted to just take a look and see. And maybe if there was air that we couldn't feel, we couldn't feel that crepitus, but there is air in that space. Maybe that would push people more towards, you know what? It doesn't matter what I see on CT. We're going to go and we're going to open this guy up. But if the patient can lie flat comfortably, the CT can definitely help. It can definitely help the consultant to figure out exactly what they're going to need to do. So we tried with this patient and we started sitting him down kind of slowly. We didn't just like drop him down to flat because that could be its own disaster. As we were sitting him further and further back, when we got to about 15 degrees of head elevated, he got pretty uncomfortable and sat right back up, bolt upright. And we're like, okay, we're not going to scan. It's not going to happen. We can get the x-ray at the bedside. That's about the best we can do. Yeah. Now, then it's just a, a matter of coordination, you know, sharing that information with your, your surgeon, your kind of definitive person with knife and, you know, what do they want to do next? What do you want to do next? Make a joint decision. Absolutely. And so when our consultants arrived, we had ENT there, we had anesthesia there. They saw that the patient couldn't really lie flat. We gave them the options. And I said, you know, anesthesia, if you guys want to intubate this person and then go to CT scan, that's totally reasonable. If you want to just take them to the OR and do it, and ENT said, let me just talk to my attending and see what they want. And so they talked to the attending and the attending said, you know what, just bring them up to the OR. 
bring him up to the OR. We'll take care of the airway there. And it sounds like this guy is going to need to have a debridement is going to need to be opened up. We don't really need the CT scan to push us in that direction. So it was really nice because I think everyone did what they should do, which is weird, Jan, because I know you have the same experience I do. Getting everyone to say the right thing and do the right thing for the patient sometimes can be a little difficult. This is one of those where everything kind of fell into place. And honestly, I can say within about 75, 80 minutes of this patient hitting the door, they were on their way to the operating room and it ended up being pretty straightforward. So anesthesia did an intubation with fiber optics. Then they gave him all of the inhaled anesthetics and all that other stuff, got him sedated. ENT opened, they debrided, and the patient actually did really well. Didn't need a trach, didn't need any of those other interventions. Went back to the OR one more time for an extra debridement, but then actually got discharged home about 10 days later. I mean, great, good outcome. And I'm glad you had a team that was willing to take him up and do the right thing. I think a lot of people listening to this case who are thinking, I don't have any of those resources. I don't have, you know, an anesthesia person who's going to come to nothing, you know, and they're stuck with a transfer. The decision making about timing of interventions would be very different. And probably this patient's going to get intubated in the ED, maybe even the scan done in the ED. Got to make sure that transfer is safe. So I hear you out there. Like, you may have to take care of this yourself. I get it. We get it. Absolutely. 100%. And, and I think we do, again, have that luxury of having all those consultants, having the OR right there. But I think we just have to keep in the back of our minds, Jan, that these are anatomically challenging airways, or they can be anatomically challenging airways, but a paralytic might actually really help you by relaxing those muscles, relieving the trismus, and you might actually have a pretty straightforward intubation. So sometimes doing what you're really good at is the right answer. That being said, if you have fiber optics, fiber optics can be extremely useful here, either to go through the mouth or to go through the nose, and then you don't have to worry about paralyzing the patient. You could just do this awake if you have that skill set. If you have a surgeon, whether it be ENT or oral surgery, get them on the phone as soon as you can. Even if you're transferring them, get them on the phone as soon as you can so you can help to arrange that transportation, get the patient over to where they need to go. And then remember that the diagnosis, Ludwig's angina, is really a clinical one. You can do this at the bedside. You don't need advanced imaging. Yes, advanced imaging is going to be helpful for your surgical colleagues to figure out how they're going to approach the surgery itself, but it's not necessary to make the diagnosis. So don't think you have to get the CT. Think about, can I get the CT? Will the patient be comfortable doing that? Absolutely. Great case. All right, let's move into the rest of the month, Jan, because uh, that's the only Ludwig's Angina we're going to talk about today. <laughs> we have no other Ludwig's Angina to talk about for the rest of the segments, but we do have some really fun stuff. So what did you like this month? What was your favorite segment of the month? So my favorite is the one you did with Amal about low-risk chest pain. And the reason I love it so much is because it's just so common. We see it all the time. And you know, I think we really do have to be up to date with what's out there in the literature. And you guys covered a really excellent paper and it gave us some really good advice about how to look at these patients, handle them and what the recommendations are these days. There's nothing groundbreaking in there, Jan, but I think it's a really good way to put all of the information that we have together to kind of guide how we manage those patients. My favorite segment was the rapid neuro exam with Scott Kobner. Scott is one of our up and coming faculty with the group. And this is a really nice way to kind of look at the patient who's coming in with a neuro complaint and decide, do I need to go down that route of stroke code activation? So Scott really gives a nice way to approach those patients, get a quick exam, and then get them off to the imaging that they need. Yeah, it, that was a really good one. And I love I love revisiting such you know basic skills that we need to have. And anyone who can always offer me a pearl on my physical exam, I always welcome it. All right, Jan, we have so much other great stuff this month. Aside from those segments, 
I don't know, for the listeners, maybe they're going to find something else that's their favorite. But um, those are ours. Those are our favorites. Like we always say, we don't have favorite children, except for the ones that we talk about in the intro, which are our favorite children of the month. Those are our favorites. But uh, I wonder what everyone else is going to love. There's so much good stuff in here. And I can't wait to see you on the other side in the mailbag, where we also have a great question and a great answer. And then, of course, in the mega summary. Hey, can I jump in here and do an announcement? And that's about ASIP. So, MRAP is going to ASIP. We are going to have a booth there. Woohoo! That's been a while. And we're actually going to do an educational thing, the details of which are a little bit murky. But we did sort of the MRAP conference within a conference a number of years ago. We're going to do a very similar thing again. And this is on the tales of MRAP going through a pretty significant change in how we make it to your earballs, which will be coming out just before ASIP for October 1st. We're going to do a live show and tell you more about that. So just wanted to get it in your head. There's going to be some stuff going on at ASAP this year. It's in Philly. Hope to see you there. And uh, more about all of the mysterious things that are happening coming soon. All right, everybody. Time for March. Let's blast off. The 2A recommendation is a continuous, smooth, sustained control and avoid the peaks and large variability, which kind of argues for an infusion versus bolus dosing. Benvenuto, Dr. Evi Marcolini. Dr. Evi Marcolini, neurocritical care and emergency medicine specialist, and we are diving into the 2022 stroke update on spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage management. And while a lot of this 82-page document is relevant to the neurosurgeons, a certain amount of it is very relevant to the emergency clinician. And we're going to focus on those pieces, starting with blood pressure management. You already heard Evie say that we need to have a smooth, steady lowering of the blood pressure without peaks and valleys. Let's move on to the rest of the recommendations in this document. The 2A recommendation also says initiate treatment within two hours with a goal target within one hour. And let's talk about specific blood pressures. First of all, 2B recommendation that says if the presenting blood pressure is 150 to 220, we should target 140 with our goal maintenance 130 to 150. And if it's a large or severe intracerebral hemorrhage, which they don't really give a definition for, or if it requires surgical decompression, we really don't know what to do with that blood pressure. Much of this is a conversation with neurosurgeons. They do give a level three recommendation of harm. They say, if the initial blood pressure is greater than 150, don't go below 130 because it's potentially harmful. So essentially what we're looking at is targeting 130 to 140, no bumps in the road, And if the blood pressure is 150 to 220, target 140, and you have some leeway, maintain it 130 to 150. And if it's really a large bleed or if they're going to the OR, we have no data. I would say if you're going to the OR, you definitely want to be below 180. This data is not new. It comes from the Interact 2 and the Attack 2 trials that we've talked about. The Interact 2 used a lot of different agents, oral and IV, and the Attack 2 used nicardipine, which is what we typically use. So there's nothing new with the recommendations for agents. It makes sense that anything with a rapid onset and short duration and easy titration is appropriate, and that's what they say. 
And the agents that most of us have are recommended, including nicardipine, clavidipine, even labetalol or esmolol. We want to stay away from the venous vasodilators like nitroglycerin or nitroprusside because they can cause unopposed venodilation and that vasodilation can increase the risk of increasing ICP simply because the vessels are taking up space in the brain. And when we look at the ATT&CK2 trial, there was a meta-analysis done that showed that the lesser variability in the first 24 hours was associated with a better modified Rankin score at 90 days. So that's the data that they're using to talk about variability in addition to our common sense. Bottom line is, earlier is better. This was shown in both the ATT&CK2 and the INTERACT2 trials. And when you put that together with the recommendation for treatment within two hours and a goal within one hour, that has implications for those of us who are transferring a patient to another center. It's really important to get the blood pressure goals taken care of before you put the patient in the ambulance because that has implications down the road. Or at least we should be making sure to get those agents started before transferring. So don't transfer and say, you guys can start the medications on the other end. Let's start the medications at least and get that transfer moving so that we can get that blood pressure under control as they're going to arrive at the receiving center. Really important concept. All right, based on your clinical practice and these recommendations, is there a certain group of patients where you're targeting a higher systolic than that 130 to 150? If I have somebody who I know lives in the higher blood pressure range, like a non-compliant patient with baseline hypertension, and I know he lives in the 220s, I'm going to target less than 180. I'm not going to try to go more than 20, 25% below where he is because I really want to protect the perfusion to the core organs such as the kidneys. And this is also an ongoing conversation with the neurosurgical team. Moving from blood pressure control, the next big section of Rex is on anticoagulation-related hemorrhage and reversal. They lead with a strong level one recommendation that if the patient has anticoagulant-related spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage, immediately stop the anticoagulant agent and start reversal immediately, even if you don't have objective data on the level of anticoagulation. So for instance, if the patient is on warfarin, you might not know the INR, but you already know there's a bleed, start the reversal process. But in terms of actual reversal, there is some debate depending on what agent the patient's on. Where there's little debate, is on those vitamin K antagonists like warfarin. But let's just summarize the recommendations. I have a patient on warfarin, comes in with a bleed. What should I be doing to reverse that warfarin? Here are the guidelines. If the INR is greater than two, use four-factor PCC over FFP and replace vitamin K either five or 10 milligrams after you give the PCC. That's a level one recommendation. The level 2B recommendation says if the INR is 1.3 to 1.9, it might be reasonable to use four-factor PCC. And you can use a lower dose, like 10 to 20 international units per kilo. So the dosing information for PCC only recommends over an INR of 2. But we can use it for 1.3 to 1.9. With unfractionated heparin, there's a level 2A recommendation that IV protamine is reasonable. And with low molecular weight heparin, another level 2 recommendation, 2B, that IV protamine may be considered and it partially reverses the anticoagulation effect. 
I'm going to come back to the implication for those who are transferring patients to another center, lowering blood pressure, getting that started, and reversing the anticoagulation is so much more impacting than getting them to the tertiary care quickly. So start those agents before you put them in the ambulance. Of course, I mean, more and more of our patients aren't taking warfarin for their anticoagulation needs. They are taking the DOACs. And this has really forced us to be more adept at understanding the reversal of these agents and knowing what to give. Let's start with dabigatran, not an agent that I see a lot of patients on, but we do get these coming in from time to time. If the patient is on dabigatran and has a head bleed, what's the recommendation for reversal? I agree with you. I don't see patients on dabigatran as much anymore, but there's a level 2A recommendation that idarucizumab is reasonable. Level 2B recommendation says if it's not available, you can consider four-factor PCC, or you could consider renal replacement therapy, and it just reduces the dabigatran concentration. The issue with the recommendations here, and we've seen a lot of people already take issue with it, is that the evidence behind idarucizumab isn't really that strong. The evidence has kind of given us maybe it helps with some secondary markers, some non clinical markers for the patient outcomes. We don't have a good study telling us that idarucizumab improves outcomes. It is a little bit more expensive than PCC, although at this point they might be about the same cost. Fortunately, most of our hospitals do have a protocol in place and say, if X anticoagulant, give Y. And that's probably what we're going to be sticking with in those scenarios. I agree with you. And it's hard to pronounce. (laughs) Yes, it's absolutely hard to pronounce, which is going to be even harder to pronounce in the moment. When I'm a little bit nervous, I'm a little shaky because I got this patient with a big bleed and I got to reverse them. Let's move on to some of the more common anticoagulant agents, the 10A inhibitors. This is what most of my patients are coming in on. This is what's replaced the dabigatran and the warfarin to a large degree. But it also means that many of the patients that we see that are on anticoagulation and have a bleed are going to be on one of these and we need to know how to reverse them. And we don't really have as much experience with reversing them as we do with warfarin. So what should we be reaching for to reverse a 10A inhibitor like rivaroxaban or apixaban? Here are the recommendations. 2A, andexanet alpha is reasonable. 2B, four-factor PCC may be considered. So we don't have great data on this. There is a large multicenter open-label study in patients who had major bleeding associated with 10A inhibitors. And a subgroup in that publication showed that Less than 35% increase in volume was seen after 12 hours, and now that's a good marker, in 79% of patients. So it's not great data. It's a subgroup analysis. That gives us less excitement about using Endexanet, but historically, we know that cost is a huge factor. And even when it came out, there were only giving out limited supplies to some hospitals. But we do know that it's, it's worth talking to your PNT if you think you want to have this because Indexanet has gone through proprietary changes and the price has come down significantly. Yeah, we've definitely talked about this before and the limitations of the data, how it gives us, again, these surrogate markers and not really good, hard clinical outcomes. And there's a lot of biases built in because the studies have been funded by the pharmaceutical company, which is always a little bit of a problem. So we don't have great data driving it. And the cost we've quoted in the past was upwards of $30,000, dollars $50,000 for treatment of a single patient. But like you said, those numbers have come down. So it's something to look at. Personally, everywhere I work, we don't have this on formulary. So it's not something that we're ever reaching for. 
And I think that that second recommendation, that 2B recommendation for PCC, four-factor PCC, is probably what more people have access to. So it's good that we have both of those recommendations there to fall back on. Of course, also knowing that the PCC data for reversal of these agents isn't that strong either, but it is kind of the standard practice at this point. This takes me back to when the DOACs first came out. We were all terrified of them, and I was very scared that patients were going to be on them, and we had absolutely nothing to reverse them. And then four-factor PCC came into play, and now we've got more research going into these reversal agents. I'm glad that it's moving forward because I feel much more comfortable having something like PCC or some of these other agents in my armamentarium, but we don't have Indexanet either. And I want to say one more thing. There's another part of the recommendation with dabigatran or the 10A inhibitors. If the agent was taken within a few hours, you might think about activated charcoal. It may be reasonable and it helps prevent absorption. And that's a 2B recommendation. And before all of the toxicologists come out of the woodwork telling us about the limitations of activated charcoal, I'll just remind everybody that if the patient's altered and you're worried about the airway, don't give activated charcoal. That's going to be a, a huge problem if they aspirate that. I have seen one aspiration of activated charcoal and it, it was ugly. It was definitely ugly and definitely a mistake to have given it. Exactly. All right, let's bridge over from the anticoagulants to the antiplatelets because so many of our patients are on antiplatelet agents, whether it be aspirin, whether it be clopidogrel. What should we be doing in those circumstances? So patient comes in with a bleed, they're on one of these antiplatelet agents. What do I need to do differently for that patient? Yeah, and this data comes from the PATCH trial, which we've talked about. This is a randomized controlled trial that showed that in spontaneous supertentorial intracerebral hemorrhage with a patient on antiplatelet therapy, one unit of platelets that were given to reduce hematoma expansion, death or dependence, was associated with worse functional outcome at three months, and it had a borderline significant increase in risk of any significant adverse events. This data was a surprise. We expected to see that giving platelets would be helpful in these patients, but it wasn't, and this is the best trial that we have to date, and the recommendations are pretty straightforward. If you've got a patient with ICH on aspirin and going to the OR for a crany, consider platelets. If your patient has an ICH and is being treated with antiplatelet agents, the effectiveness of desmopressin to reduce hematoma expansion is uncertain. And if your patient's on aspirin, but they're not scheduled for surgery, platelet transfusions are potentially harmful and shouldn't be given. So in a nutshell, don't automatically give the platelets unless the patient is going to the OR or having a ventriculostomy put in and the jury's out on desmopressin. It's important to know the exceptions to that trial or the patients that were excluded, those going to surgery, traumatic intracranial hemorrhage was also excluded there. And I think really this is going to be governed by your neurosurgeon. If they're going to take them to the OR, they might ask for platelets. I found sometimes they take them to the OR and they don't ask for platelets. So just ask the team and say, since we don't really have great guidance on what to do, what do you want to do for this patient before you take them to the OR? And that's going to kind of be your default. To close up all of the reversal talk in these guidelines, just two last things to mention. One, they say that activated factor seven really doesn't play a role in reversal and that TXA doesn't seem to be all that useful. And they move from the reversal stuff to prophylactic anti-epileptic medications. Should we be giving? 
prophylactic anti-seizure medications for patients with spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. Level one recommendation says if the patient has impaired consciousness and seizure on EEG, give them anti-seizure medications. Or if they have a clinical seizure, give them anti-seizure medications. And the level three or harm recommendation says if there's no evidence of seizures, don't give prophylactic anti-seizure medication. It doesn't help outcome and doesn't help long-term seizure control or mortality. So the thing for us to remember is if that patient doesn't have a completely intact neuro exam, I'm starting to think about, hmm, are they seizing? If I have the ability to get an EEG, I will. But if they have a non-normal neuro exam or a fluctuating neuro exam, I'm going to consider giving anti-seizure medication. Finally, Abby, I want to get a bit into advanced imaging. And this is something that does move a little bit out of the realm of the emergency clinician, but it's good for us to know what modalities we might be asked to order for the patient. Most of the time, I'm going to make this diagnosis on a non-con head CT. We can kind of move past that. But then there are a lot of other options for imaging. There's the CTA, the CTV, there's the MRA, the MRV. There's so much advanced imaging out there and we get asked to order these things, but it's good for us to understand why. So in the patient with a spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage, what modalities are we going to be asked to order? This is an important question because a lot of our colleagues are trying to make the decision, do I get a CT or do I get a CT and a CTA at the same time? So I think it's really worth going over. First of all, think of the most common causes of ICH. That's chronic hypertension and cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Those two present typically in the older population and in the lobar distribution of the brain. But if somebody has a lobar bleed and they're less than 70, this is what their age cutoff is, think about getting a CTA. If they have a deep or posterior fossa bleed and they're less than age 45, think about getting that CTA. And if they're between 45 and 70 and they have a deep posterior fossa bleed but no history of hypertension, then think about getting a CTA. So we should consider CTA in those cases where we're saying, huh, I'm kind of surprised that this person has a bleed. I wonder what's causing it. And then we're looking for a vascular cause of the bleed. We're looking for AVM, for aneurysm, dural AV fistula, cavernoma, or even a cerebral venous thrombosis. One caveat here is I'm not in a huge hurry to get the contrast-associated studies because sometimes the amount of the blood in the hematoma will compromise that imaging. And the second thing is the neurosurgeons may have plans to do a catheter-directed angiography And they're going to want to save the contrast for that procedure. So I don't want to spend it up front if they're going to go to angio. Any patient with a history of AVM, dural AV fistula, or any vascular anomaly will likely need a CTA. And the other case to think about is isolated intraventricular hemorrhage. It's really rare. So you're probably going to end up getting an MRA or a CTA or even a DSA to look for another source. But it's going to be a conversation with neurosurgery because there's other things that they may want to be doing. And I always want to think about saving the contrast and not spending it up front. Another question that we might be faced with 
due to the time it takes to transfer the patient or the time they stay in the ED waiting for a bed is, do we need to get a repeat CT? You get the first CT, you see the bleed. Now they've been in your ED for 10 hours. Should you have gotten a repeat CT? So the guideline says that in one study of intracerebral hemorrhage, 35% of patients required neurosurgical intervention after admission. 46% of them were instigated by imaging findings, and 54% of them were instigated by a change in neuro exam. So the recommendation that they give is that routine serial imaging might be good to do in addition to the neuro exams. Continue to be vigilant with that neuro exam at least every hour to look for a change. If that neuro exam changes, they're going right back to the scanner. And if four to six hours has gone by, it's worth getting another CT as a surveillance. There's no data to support that four to six hour number, by the way. It's anecdotal. It's what I've seen. It's what we do. And what you want to know is whether or not that bleed has expanded. Summary. This guideline is chock full of information, and we're not even getting into the stuff that doesn't apply to us. It applies to the inpatient and the neurosurgery side. But the big things that I take away from this is one, when it comes to blood pressure control, for most patients, we're shooting for a 130 to 150 range. We want to lower that smoothly. We don't want any peaks or big valleys because that can compromise brain tissue. And if the patient is markedly hypertensive, if they have a big bleed, they're going to the OR for a craniectomy, or you get the sense that the patient usually lives at 260 or 270, you can just start by taking 25% off the top with your usual agents, nicardipine, clavidipine, labetabol, all of these are reasonable agents to use. Reversal of anticoagulation is fairly complicated. The recommendations for warfarin really hasn't changed. Four-factor PCC over FFP. Don't forget to give the vitamin K as well. If you have FFP and not four-factor PCC, just give the FFP. You got to give something in there to reverse that warfarin. And then when it comes to all of the DOACs, it gets a little bit more muddy. For dabigatran, they do recommend idarucizumab, but the data is not very strong there. For the 10A inhibitors like rivaroxaban and apixaban, they recommend andexanate alpha, but again, the data is not very strong. You can use four-factor PCC in either of those scenarios if you don't have those specific agents, but the data for four-factor PCC, also not that strong. But we're going to be forced to do something, and either of those is reasonable. Again, what you really want is an institutional protocol that tells you what you have in hospital and what to use. For antiplatelet agents, we don't want to give platelets unless the patient is going to the operating room or the neurosurgeon asks for it because they're going to the OR, because the patch trial tells us that giving platelets in these scenarios can actually lead to harm. For our colleagues out there that are transferring these patients to a receiving center, it is vitally important to start that blood pressure management at the initial time of diagnosis, as well as starting that reversal process prior to transferring, because those really do predict bad outcomes if they're not controlled early. As far as anti-epileptic medications, if the patient looks good, they have a normal neuro exam, they're not having any seizures, you shouldn't be giving an AED because that can be associated with harm. But if they're altered, you think maybe they're having subclinical status or they do have a seizure event, then we want to load with an AED. And then finally, expect that you are going to be asked to get some advanced imaging. And most of the time, the best thing to do is to ask the neurosurgery team or the neurology team, what imaging do you want next? Because that's really the best way to get the information that they need to make the next decisions down the line. Evie, thanks for taking this 80-page guideline and summing it up in this short segment. 
Medicine Talks. Greetings all, Vanessa Cardi here, back for another Rural Medicine piece. I once again have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Benjamin Matti. Welcome back to Rural Med, Ben, and let's jump right in as you set the scene for this particular case. This was a case during a first shift I had at a critical access hospital in the Pacific Northwest coast of the U.S. And many of you may not know what that is, and so I read here from Rural Health and it says a critical access hospital is a designation given to eligible rural hospitals by the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. That's the big government pay here in the US. Congress created this critical access hospital designation through the Balanced Budget Act of 1997 in response to over 400 rural closures during the 1980s and 90s. Since its creation, it's been amended a number of times. And basically this keeps some hospitals open in places where it otherwise would not be financially viable, leaving whole rural areas without healthcare at all. So these places are out there with poor access. It was a small hospital, single provider in the emergency department, 24-hour shifts. There is a hospitalist in-house. They usually only accept minor admissions. So a big part of the job in the emergency department is setting up transfers. This particular day, which was my first shift, it was calm all day long. I got to do a lot of paperwork. I did some reading. I planned to hike through a old-growth forest um, for the next day on my day off. And I was walking over to the nurse station in the evening to let them know I was going to sit down, maybe lie down and take a nap. And they were wheeling a woman back in a wheelchair at that very moment. I looked over at her and she had an obvious facial droop. She wasn't moving the left side of her body. Talking briefly with her partner, he said that since the previous evening, so almost 24 hours ago, she had been acting confused, wasn't moving the left side of your body, and that her face looked kind of odd to him. He wasn't sure what medications she takes usually. Neither he nor she brought them with them. He did think that she was taking insulin, but hasn't been taking it for several days. Eventually, we got her on the monitor, and her blood pressure was 230 over 110. She was tachycardic in the one teens, satting well on room air. The glucometer read critically high in red. Trying to get a history from her, she was encephalopathic. She was oriented only to herself. She wouldn't follow commands. She was making up answers, confabulating with word soup and mumbles. And just on a quick glance at her, she had the facial droop and weakness in her left upper and lower extremity. So I was kind of getting into my NIH scale, and then the charge nurse came up to me saying the paramedics were calling ahead for a woman that fell from a ladder with obvious depressed skull fracture and was found pulseless when they got there. They had started CPR in the field, and they got ROSC, and they were less than five minutes away from arrival. All right, so your idea of going for a rest has gone out of the window, utterly and completely. So tell me how it felt in the emergency room after that call from the paramedic. There was this just frantic sort of energy emanating from her, which just spread throughout the staff and the whole department. So I huddled with the nurses that we had, and there were two nurses. They were already overwhelmed by just the thought of this traumatic arrest coming in. One of the nurses was young. She was just out of nursing school. The other nurse was a traveling nurse who was usually a floor nurse, but had been in the department for a couple months, so she had some experience there. Thankfully, the nursing supervisor was actually a former ED nurse, so he had some experience in the department and sort of knew where things were, which which would turn out to be very important. So what were your plans for managing patient one while your whole team was potentially monopolized by the lady who had had a traumatic arrest and who was about to arrive in your department imminently? Patient one was really ill. I was worried about a large vessel occlusion. I was worried about hypertensive encephalopathy. She was obviously hyperglycemic. But my thinking was she was 
probably at least 24 hours into her illness with not a lot of change over that time. So my thought was hopefully she could get some level of evaluation with labs and imaging so that after patient two came in and we were able to address whatever was going on with her, we could turn our attention back to patient one and have some sort of head start with her. So you're coming up with a plan for patient one, and I guess you're also simultaneously kind of heading into a team huddle in preparation for patient two. What sort of things were you talking about for the patient who was about to arrive? With patient two, I knew we had not a whole lot of time to huddle and prepare things. So I brought our nurses, the nurse soup, and the respiratory therapist who arrived, and I said, this, this could be a really difficult case. If she had ROSC, we're going to probably need to support her blood pressure in some way. There's probably a really good chance that she might lose pulses again. So we need to have ACLS ready. We should have some medications ready for the TBI, Keppra, hypertonic saline, TXA. Luckily, by chance, the pharmacist also was passing through the department on his way home and gracefully offered to stay to help get all of these medications. The other thing I did is I grabbed the ultrasound, which I think probably was purchased during Bill Clinton's first term because it took five to 10 minutes to turn on and I really quickly discovered that the battery was not working. Fortunately, when I go to these critical access hospitals, I bring my handheld ultrasound. So I had that lined up and ready to be able to do an e-fast and sort of assess cardiac function. And it turned out it also helped with placing lines. Such a good rural doctor, always prepared. Boy Scouts, rural doctors, it's all kind of the same <laughs> thing, eh? So the respiratory therapist was there. She was somewhat new, so we took a couple minutes to talk through the procedure, and I really wanted to spend more time with her. But very soon after we started discussing, the, the patient too arrived. But what we did talk about was we we're going to use a video laryngoscopy to start because of the concern for C-spine injury. I really like in these cases to have a king tube because it can be placed, it's secure, and then I can turn my attention to other parts of the resuscitation and then go back and get a more definitive airway if I need to afterwards. But I didn't have that with me at that time. So we stuck with the plan. Let's get our video laryngoscope. Let's get everything ready and set up for that. And she set off to find a plug to plug it in, which was also surprisingly difficult. Oh yeah, you'd think there would be plugs everywhere in emergency departments, eh? But it's amazing how much time you spend like crawling under stretchers and moving equipment looking for a plug. Taking a step back now and thinking back to just before patient two arrived, what was the feeling like in the emergency room then? How are the staff handling all this? So if I thought it was frantic to begin with, the, the level of chaos sort of spiraled more and more. It was a lot of people sort of frantically rummaging around, which is really less than ideal. And then the patient arrived pretty much right at that moment where I'm lamenting the level of chaos. How did patient number two look when she arrived? She was bradycardic in the 40s. Her pupils were fixed and dilated. GCS was three. She was being bagged with an oral airway. There was blood pooling behind her head and dripping off the gurney. The last pressure that the paramedics had was systolic 80 over, I don't remember, like 40 or something like that. Their report was that she fell from a ladder of 10 to 15 feet. It was unwitnessed. There was a lot of blood pooling around her. When they got there, she was pulseless, but they started CPR and regained pulses. So I turned to the pharmacist. I said, yeah, we're going with all the medications we talked about, hypertonic, TXA, Keppra, get norepinephrine started, draw up all of our ACLS medications because I don't have a great feeling about where this is going, and also ask for two units of PRBC because it did look like she lost a lot of blood. 
Now, you mentioned that this was your first shift in this particular hospital. So I imagine it all went super easily from there, right? Just like on TV, you called out commands and things were done magically? Yeah, everything just happened. It was great. (laughs) For me, it was somewhat of a new experience because in my other hospitals where I work, which are bigger trauma centers, things just sort of happen, right? All of a sudden, the patient is on the monitor and there's pads on them and the defibrillator is set up. In this case, that, that was not at all. So sort of the really basic things that I've never really thought about to address or ask for that, that I needed to start doing. Eventually, the hospitalist arrived, and I was able to sort of enlist his help in, in doing some of the initial survey. I had my point-of-care ultrasound and started doing an EFAS because I wanted to make sure that we weren't missing attention pneumo or pericardial effusion or free fluid in the abdomen that would have really changed the direction of things. And luckily, the initial EFAS was, was negative. So my focus at this point really turned to neurotrauma. After we secured the airway, I needed to take a step back. I repeated my EFAS just to make sure there wasn't something that developed like a tension pneumo after the change to positive pressure ventilation. I reassessed access and the only access we had was a really small IV in the dorsum of the hand. So I got the IO and, and placed the IO. And shortly after getting the IO, the monitor started beeping a little slower. And I looked up and I saw her braided down 50, 40, 30, 20. Checked pulses, they were absent. So at that point, we started CPR again. Fortunately, we got ROSC really quickly. The norepinephrine at that point finally was hung and we got it started. But she quickly braided down again, lost pulses. We did another round of ACLS, started compressions. She regained pulses once again. So this sounds exhausting, these endless cycles of ROSC and then loss of pulses. And it's really hard for the team. Like it's literally an emotional roller coaster, right? So how are you feeling at this point? And how is the team feeling? And also, I guess we haven't mentioned this yet. How is the patient's family? Our team, we still had that sort of initial resuscitation adrenaline surge, and we were being pushed forward by that. During this time, the family had actually arrived. And at some point, I guess the hospitalist had gone out there and spoke with them. He gave them an update about what was going on, got some history, and learned a little bit more about the patient. Turned out that she actually was in treatment for metastatic cancer. She was doing well, but the family believed that the patient wouldn't want any further CPR or resuscitation if she should lose pulses again. So at this point with that history, kind of spoke out loud to the team, just went through the situation, summarized all the things that we had done as a group to help her, discussed that this seems like a really traumatic, devastating TBI and brought it up to the team if there was any other thoughts or any other ideas about what we should do. Also discussed the information the family gave us about what the patient's wishes would be at this point. Shortly thereafter, patient braided down again. We lost pulses. She had asystole on the monitor. I looked with the ultrasound. There was no cardiac movement and we pronounced her dead. We had a moment of silence. We took a few seconds to thank each other. And then we had to turn our attention to patient one at that point. Sorry to jump in again, but I really wanted to highlight two things here that you mentioned that were really, I think, really important. You said that you summarized out loud for your team the situation as it stood and what had been done up to that point. You went over your plan, and that's really a great chance for you as a team leader to collect your thoughts, particularly when you're having to jump in and out in terms of doing actual bedside care. And it's also a chance for other team members to weigh in with ideas and suggestions. And you can see that that really prompts people to reflect on what's been done, 
and to kind of rally for what might come next. And also it kind of engages them with the actual case. It empowers them to say, I have a role in the care of this patient, which can be really, really powerful. And then another thing that you did was after the patient's death was pronounced, you took a moment of silence in memory of the patient. I think this is such a lovely way to honor the life that has now ended. And it also provides you and your team a chance to literally take a breath, a moment for yourself, reflect on what just happened before you turn around and head back out into the emergency room to continue your job. That extra moment really just to take a breath and sort of recompose and be with the patient, the deceased for for that few seconds there was really important. And I think it really helped us turn our attention back to the patient one who, if you remember, was hypertensive, cephalopathic, hemiplegia, and hyperglycemic. Unfortunately, because of all of the resources being directed to patient two, patient one didn't have very much done. So on exam, there wasn't that much different from her. So we had the patient transported over to the CT scanner for a CTA. With that short little pause, I was able to go back out and talk with the family of patient two. They were in tears because the hospitalist had told them that she passed. And we talked about her life, what they remembered about her and loved about her, and really just welcomed them to come back into the room once we had everything sort of clean and organized for them. Right as things were wrapping up, I got a phone call that the CTA was done. So I excused myself, went back in the department, quickly flipped through the images. I didn't see any big white area in the brain or any huge, obvious blush coming from vessels. So I was relatively reassured that there wasn't anything that needed to be done right at that moment. So obviously this patient needed to be transferred and that was going to take a little while. So at that point, I basically sat by her bedside for three hours, intermittently on the phone, arranging her transfer, titrating her drips, managing her insulin, and doing neurochecks with some amount of frequency. And so she was successfully transferred. Do you have any idea what her outcome was? The next time I was there, I followed up and it sounds like she did well. She was discharged back into her usual state of health from what I was told. Oh, that's great. That's great. So these were challenging cases for any small emergency room and you had two of them and they came in at basically the same time, which always leads to new and exciting challenges that you might not have anticipated. So what things did you take away from this case? Um, Any things that you've reflected on looking back? It was a great learning situation. I realized how important it is to know your staff. And if you don't know them, how important it is to be able to read what's going on. So some some amount of emotional intelligence and empathy. The other thing that I think was really challenging was triaging tasks, triaging attention, triaging resources that we had. So I would have liked to have had a little bit of a calmer, less chaotic beginning but we needed to get all that stuff. If, if I had taken any time to sort of bring the chaos level down, we wouldn't have had an IO at the bedside. One thing that I've seen that often happens is the most junior person in the room gets to be the one who goes off and looks for things and is sent off. But often the most junior person in the room is the person who has the least idea of where anything is. And so as hard as it can be to send your nursing supervisor off looking for things, sometimes they will know where the things are the fastest. I've been in many code situations where You know, there's a poor nurse who's been on the job for three days and they're sent to look for this piece of equipment that we haven't used in a year. And, you know, she doesn't come back, you know, because she doesn't know where it is and she gets lost and it can be very challenging. So sometimes having the uh, more senior people do the quick running gopher trips can be very helpful, but it's hard to do that because you also want them at the bedside. Oh man, that's such a great point. 
You can lose a pair of hands for 30 minutes trying to get some piece of equipment, or you can lose a pair of hands for 10 seconds. <laughs> you know, that's another equation that needs to be thought about. But thank you so much for sharing this story and for the reflections that you have on this case and for the care of people in, uh, you know, under-resourced areas. There's extra challenges that come up, which is why rural medicine is fun and exciting, but also can be stressful and terrifying. So <laughs> thank you so much, Ben. Thank you, Vanessa. It's wonderful to be here. It's time for Critical Care Mailbag. Now look out, because he's going to bust some knowledge right in your head. Absolutely. Procedural Sedation, Part 1. If you're not doing it, then you're really, I don't know if you could practice it as an EM doc. This is, <laughs> this is one of the ones that we should be truly expert at. Like people who come down to the department should be like, oh my God, you're the most efficient procedural sedation person I've ever worked with. Could you please be here every time we have like a hip dislocation or something like that? I want to start by kind of defining some terms a little bit, because we often talk about doing moderate sedation. But Scott, is that actually the paradigm that we're shooting for? Or are we mainly slipping into deep sedation or even crossing over into general anesthesia with what we do in the ED? There is minimal sedation, and it should be taking place in the ED. In fact, it should be taking place a ton more. If you have a patient with a lumbar puncture, give them to a midazolam. They won't remember, even if you hurt them a lot. You know, you don't mean to, but it's just tough to get perfect anesthesia. If you're doing a chest tube, give them to a midazolam. And that should be used far more often. It doesn't require all the paperwork. It doesn't require huge consents. I don't even know if you have to consent beyond verbal to just give this anxiolysis. And what you're really getting is amnestic effect. Moderate or conscious sedation should not exist in the emergency department. It should be a dead term. If you hear people saying that, you should correct them. It should never happen. It doesn't mean we'll never have a patient at this plane of anesthesia. What it means is you should always think you're doing deep. You should always consent for deep. You should always plan for deep. And if it turns out you only need moderate, fine. But you now, if you have to slip into deep sedation, which you almost always will, everything is prepared in terms of paperwork and in terms of preparatory stuff in the room so you can keep your patients safe. General is the huge bullshit in EM procedural sedation because if you have a hip dislocation, if you have something incredibly painful, deep sedation is not enough. The, the definition of deep sedation is the patient will respond to that deep, painful stimuli. That, that's the entire intrinsic definition is, you know, moderate sedation is they respond to voice and deep sedation, they respond to pain. We don't actually want them responding to pain. That's why we're doing the damn sedation in the first place. So what we actually need is we need general anesthesia, but we're not allowed to do that. So already the entire paradigm we're working with is just like obfuscating what we're actually doing. And what you actually want to do, though you're not allowed to document it, is you want during the actual main part of a procedure like a joint reduction, you want the patient in general, but you only want them in general for the 20 seconds you're going to be doing the hip reduction or you know the three minutes you're going to be manipulating a trimal fracture to get it into a splint. So what you want is you want deep sedation surrounding a period of general anesthesia for the actual procedure itself. If it is intensely painful procedure that needs full muscle relaxation, we're not allowed to say that. So everything is just this game of pretending that we don't want general anesthesia. Does that make sense, Swami? It does, absolutely. And we're going to take the game away for this discussion. We're going to really discuss what it is that we're actually doing. And I'm sure you had the same experience so many times when you're trying to reduce that hip and you can't get it in, you can't get it in. And then the patient slips into that really from that deep sedation to the general anesthesia and it pops right back in. And in retrospect, you realize, 
the amount of sedation and relaxation that you need to get that hip in is far deeper than what you think you might need. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And it brings up one of the main paradigms that should be gotten across, which is your medications for this should be targeting general anesthesia for the exact period of time that you actually need to do the procedure. And if you start thinking through it that way, all of a sudden everything clicks and you can make really apt decisions on how to go about doing this procedure. Once we recognize that we are in fact doing deep sedation, our consent form should reflect that. We should make sure we are consenting the patient for deep sedation. And we should have department standardized forms for the procedural sedation and analgesia, as well as for the common procedures that we are doing. Again, this is to help streamline the process so we can get the procedural sedation done quickly, we can get the procedure done quickly, and then move the patient out of that phase of their care. You mentioned very briefly about the fasting period. What is the optimal fasting period for an ED procedure, or are you basically ignoring that? The ASA has guidelines that are very strict and will cause them to cancel cases. And if you use those guidelines, I think most patients in the ED will not qualify for procedural sedation. ASEP did a very nice job of mitigating that to some extent. You can look at their clinical policy on this, and it gives you a lot more leeway. I think if you are not meeting the ASA criteria of like, I don't even remember how long it is, if it's eight or 12, I don't bother looking because I don't care. The key is somewhere in your pre-evaluation note, it must say, I consider this to be an emergently necessary procedure due to, and then write a reason, you know, like if the patient's hip remains out too long, there might be the risk of nerve damage. Same thing with an ankle, shoulder, same thing. You know, you just need to write something saying, I understood the patient did not meet ASA fasting guidelines, but I still felt the risk and benefits made this worth it. And I discussed this with the patient. So that would be the only thing I would do differently if they had, you know, not met the perfect criteria for fasting. Now, if they just ate a full KFC bucket one minute prior to them arriving in the ED, and this happens, as we all know, then you have to ask yourself, is this actually an emergency? Because that puts you at higher risk. And if it is, then should we use a medication set that's going to be less likely to be a problem if the patient pukes? Like, for instance, ketamine will retain airway reflexes to a great extent. The patients will not aspirate their vomit. Or should we give antiemetics? Or once we have them under deep sedation, should we actually place down an NG tube and suck out their stomach. You know, these are the considerations you make. Or screw it, it's not actually a, we have to do it this minute. It's we have to do it in the next five hours. Then just turf it to anesthesia and let it be their problem. You know, if you want. I don't because in most places I've been, anesthesia will just say, yeah, call me back in 12 hours and then we'll, we'll do the procedure. And if you want them to wait in your ED for 12 hours, that's fine. But otherwise, you know, it's going to be you anyway. Because at the 12 hour mark, you don't need anesthesia anymore because they've now met the fasting guidelines. So it's a risk benefit. I, I strongly advise reading that ASEP clinical policy and then making a decision with your group about how you're going to handle these. It sounds like in general, though, short of a completely full stomach that just happened, you can proceed down that pathway. But again, just keeping in mind that if you can wait, it's okay to wait a little bit, but we don't want to be pushing these procedures down the line to the next doc that comes in or the doc after that, because it's just going to cause more problems, not just for the department, but obviously for the patient too. Given that we're going into that deep sedation, we're going into general anesthesia, how should I be preparing and setting up my room and my team? So you need to have a nurse there, at least in the United States, in most places, whose main job is going to be looking at the vital signs, making sure that everything's going right, and recording everything during the sedation. So you need to have that process well in hand. And while you're doing that, you set up the patient, which means you have the stuff you need for airway management in the room. It doesn't need to be opened. In fact, opening it would be a huge waste of money. But you need an LMA 
you need a BVM. I actually like to have the BVM in the bag so it's still sterile, it's still ready for another patient. But I put on the mask, I expand the BVM if it's one of those foldable ones, and I actually hook it up to the auction. I don't turn the auction on, have everything hooked up, it's ready to go. If I need to use it, it's just a question now of turning on the auction and pulling it out of its bag. But everything's set up. It's already prepared such that it could be on the patient's face in moments. And then you should be putting on an end-tidal CO2 nasal cannula and a non-rebreather mask on this patient. We'll talk about each of those, I think, as our next steps in this procedure, but that should be part of your patient prep. And don't put the pulse ox and the blood pressure cuff on the arm that they're going to be reducing. That, that's just <laughs> going to waste time. Should there be any PSA done without end-tidal CO2 at this point? There shouldn't be any deep sedation. And since there's no moderate sedation, that means there shouldn't be any moderate sedations either. So every sedation that's not minimal should be done with end-tidal CO2, in my opinion. And now there's literature to support this. I've been saying this for 12 years, but now a body of literature has grown showing that you will find the patient's apnea sooner. You will be more reassured as to whether the patient is breathing or not. And you will have, you know, the ability to use supplemental oxygen. Because if you don't have end-tidal CO2, then what you need to do is leave the patient on room air. And I don't think any patient with deep sedation should be left on room air. I think it is uh, absolutely unacceptable. And if so, if you're going to use oxygen, then the pulse ox no longer becomes a marker of whether or not the patient is breathing. And as such, you need, need, need to do end-tidal CO2. I don't, look, I'm not going to say it's standard of care, but whatever click is right below that, Swami, maybe you have a name for it. Uh, <laughs> that's where it should live. Because I don't want to put anyone under the bus if they, you know, their ED just won't buy one. And now they have to do, you know, hip reductions. But Whatever it was one click below, that's where it stands. You should have one end-tidal CO2 unit in your ED at the very minimum. I, I think it should just be bare minimum stocking for an emergency department. The end-tidal CO2 is on. You said now we should be giving supplemental O2. How am I giving that supplemental O2? Just nasal cannula, face mask. How are you typically providing that? Okay, well, the first thing to mention is that the end-tidal nasal cannulas will not provide adequate oxygen. They are not meant to. Either they split it so that one prong is monitoring and one prong is giving, or they're mixing the two through different holes. But either way, it's not a good oxygen provision device. So if you thought it was a good idea to give nasal cannula oxygen, then I, I would put on a separate nasal cannula in the patient's nose. I don't like that, and I think it's inadequate for pre-oxygenation. So for me, it's a non-rebreather mask. And what I like to do is I'll put it at 15 during the patients. We're just talking to them, you know, ready to go, waiting for the orthopedist or what have you. Right before the procedure, I'll knock that up to flush rate. That's you know as high as your flow meter will go. It's usually 50 liters in most of the place in the US and tell the patient to take six big breaths. This is going to uh, actually be an effective means of denitrogenation. And that's what you want right before you start the procedure. If you're not doing this, then you're starting with a nitrogen mix in your alveoli. You're going to have a lot less time to desaturation. If you want to get that six, seven minutes of tolerated apnea in a normal, healthy patient, the only way you're going to get that is by nitrogen washout. So put it up to flush rate, tell them to take, you know, it's going to sound like a jet engine. It doesn't bother the patient. There's holes in that mask. It releases the pressure. It's not pressurizing the patient. They'll be fine. It's just a little loud. Tell them, take, you know, six big vital capacity breaths. That means the biggest breaths they could do. And then you knock them out. You give them your meds and they should stay on that flush rate non-rebreather throughout the entire procedure. And this is going to give you a marked time of apnea that's going to make this much, much safer than if you did not pre-oxygenate and if you did not leave them on close to 100% FiO2 during the procedure. If you didn't have end-tidal CO2, what would happen is with the pre-oxygenation, you'd have 100% saturation for a long period of time. And then you'd see it start dropping to 95, 90. Once it hits 90, to go from 90 to 60 or to 50 or 40 just takes moments. It's incredibly brief. And this misunderstanding that it's not this linear progression 
from 100 to 90 and then 90 to 80. It could be six minutes to go from 100 to 90 and then six seconds to go from 90 to 80. That's why you have to be able to know if the patient's breathing while the SAT is still reading 100%. Now that we've got all of that prep out of the way, we need to move into discussion of the agents that we are using. But before we get there, we're gonna take a little bit of a break. We're gonna let all of that information percolate in our brains. And then we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about agents and how to use these agents properly to get the patient to that deep relaxation phase so we can finish the procedure quickly and then get them rapidly out of it, minimizing that apneic time. So I didn't actually think there was too much controversial about the management of crew. It seems pretty cut and dry. But then again, when you put Al Sacchetti and Jeff Seiden in a room, everything becomes controversial. So guys, I want to hear about your management of croup because it sounds like it is very different. Dr. Eileen Claudius with some pediatric Smackdown. Let Jeff go first on this one. It's more fun to pull the rug out from him than Absolutely. it is to throw it over him. Is this one of those whatever he says, you're going to say the opposite kind of things that my kids do? <laughs> I don't care what he says. Even if I agreed with it when we started this podcast, I'm going to disagree with it. I happen to agree with you. I thought that croup was probably one of the most cut and dry diagnoses. One of my favorite things to do at the end of a long shift is see a child come in, hear their croupy cough, and be able to get them out in no time with a smile on their face. I have a fairly algorithmic approach. And that is that every child who presents with croup to my emergency department gets a single dose of a long-acting systemic steroid in the form of dexamethasone. Typically, I give it at a dose of approximately 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, though there is evidence that even half that dose can be equally effective. Then I start to stratify risk based on the severity of their other symptoms beyond the barky cough. So if they come in with audible strider and respiratory distress, they may need a little temporizing measure while we wait for those steroids to kick in. And I typically give that in the form of racemic epinephrine given via nebulizer. I give it over the course of about 15 minutes or so, and I make sure that the strider goes away and the child's comfort returns. And if so, I watch them for two hours after that, knowing that their steroids are now kicked in. If they're doing well, off they go with a pat on the head and a popsicle, and everybody's happy. So I was shocked to hear, well, I guess maybe not shocked, but I was surprised that Al disagreed with me on this one. That's a wonderful description of 1980s medicine. Smackdown. By the time you hit the late 80s, early 90s, no one was using racemic epinephrine. Everyone had switched over to garden variety L-epinephrine. Why would you use a mixture of epinephrine, the DNA uh, L-isomer, just for croup when everywhere else in the body, when you wanted to give someone epinephrine, whether an allergic reaction, whether it was cardiac arrest, whatever, you used L-epinephrine. Except for the fact that the racemic epinephrine is ridiculously expensive compared to L-epinephrine. My approach will be the following. First of all, it depends on how severe the kid's symptoms are. If it's just a barky cough and they have mild symptoms, I treat them a little bit differently than if they have you know, significant strider. When they initially come in, if they're not really severe, they get dexamethasone, but they get nebulized dexamethasone. We'll give it nebulized when they hit the door. They'll also get an oral dose of 0.15 to 0.6, depending on who's on that day and what, what they feel like giving. 
but then they will also get simultaneously with that nebulized decadron. And it's usually in the same range, 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, something like that. You just take the IV solution, stick it in a nebulizer and nebulize it. It puts the medicine exactly where you want it in the airway. And it seems to make perfect sense. If they are more severe, and I agree with you there, they're going to get epinephrine, but there they're going to get nebulized L-epinephrine. Just take your garden variety 1 to 1,000, or they changed the name, it's now 1 milligram per ml, and they get 0.5 mLs per kilogram, and you max out at 5 mLs. Throw that in the nebulizer and give it to them. So the question comes, you know, why would you give a mixture of the DNL isomer? And there is data that the D isomer actually muck up some of the receptors and make the L isomer less effective when you nebulize it. Aside from having a dusty old bottle of racemic epinephrine around, I'm not sure why anybody would use anything other than L epinephrine. There's no benefit of racemic epinephrine over L-epinephrine, but there's no downside either. Every study that I've seen has showed really equal efficacy across the board, and the advantages of L-epinephrine in some places around the globe are availability. But I'll tell you, the ordering capability of L-epinephrine in our shop is really zero. We have racemic epinephrine readily available, easy to order, easy to get. Our respiratory therapists are comfortable using it. Drawing up epinephrine from a multi-dose vial is not something I think is necessary. I think it introduces the possibility of errors. While I don't object in theory to the utilization of L-epinephrine, I think at this stage of the game in our area and in my institution, I think in most institutions, it really doesn't provide any significant benefit. And so I stick with the old standby because there hasn't been any evidence to demonstrate that it's inferior in any way clinically. So it sounds like Jeff is wearing the beige tux with the ruffles and the 70s hair, and Al is a little bit more futuristic. So Jeff, you are giving the tried and true 0.3 milligrams per kilo of dexamethasone orally. I'm guessing you're crushing the tablets and putting them in something that doesn't taste terribly noxious and nebulizing the 2.25% racemic epinephrine. On the other hand, Al, you're giving the oral dexamethasone as well, but in the patient who does have ongoing strider or respiratory distress at rest, you are taking the 1 to 1,000 regular epinephrine off the code cart and giving 0.5 mLs per kilo up to a max of 5, nebulizing that as well as nebulizing the IV formulation of dexamethasone at a dose of 0.3 milligrams per kilo, I'm guessing up to a max of eight milligrams. You got it. Everybody gets the nebulized dexamethasone and the oral both when they come in. The dexamethasone orally takes up to six hours to work. It's usually four to six hours before you see any effect and giving it IV isn't any quicker. The nice thing about nebulizing it is the dexamethasone is a vasoconstrictor. If you ever want to take a look at it, take some of the topical steroids, especially the the more potent ones like the clobitazone and those types, and just take a little bit on your finger and rub it on your arm and you'll blanch right where you rub that cream. And so when you nebulize it, it is both an anti-inflammatory and a vasoconstrictor. By nebulizing it, number one, you're getting its anti-inflammatory effect into an area where you want it to work quicker. So it's not going to take six hours to work. And it gives you the same vasoconstriction that you would get if you were to nebulize everybody with epinephrine. If they don't respond easily to that or they're more severe and you do need to give them epinephrine, they get the L-epinephrine. So when it comes to steroids, if I can just summarize what at least I know from the literature, and that is that in head-to-head comparisons, systemic dexamethasone is far superior to nebulized dexamethasone when given alone. I know that's not what you're suggesting you're giving in a combination, but one phase of the literature is that we know that nebulized dexamethasone is not nearly as effective in terms of 
preventing repeat visits, progression of disease, hospital admissions. It's not nearly as effective as systemic steroids. On the other hand, we also know that systemic steroids at a dose of 0.6 per kilo, 0.3 per kilo, and even some evidence of 0.15 per kilo of dexamethasone is extraordinarily effective at preventing repeat visits, progression of disease, hospitalization. You're suggesting that even though we know that systemic steroids alone are tremendously effective, you want to add an inferior medication to that regimen, further complicating, prolonging stay, agitating patients, because as you know, nobody likes to have a nebulizer shooting down their throat. And you want to add that to the regimen, even though there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that it's necessary in preventing the ultimate outcomes that we're looking for. Body slam. Well, actually way off base. Number one, if you compare IV, oral, and nebulized dexamethasone for the acute management of croup, they're all equally effective. We're not talking about asthma. We're talking about croup. That is not true. Yeah, there's head-to-head studies that show that. And the head-to-head studies show far greater return visits and failure treatment with nebulized dexamethasone. We're talking about their initial management. Number one, the initial management's improved with the decadron, but if you look at two to four hours out, it is the same. Now, if you're going to tell me at 72 hours, there's a difference. Yeah, there's a difference at 72 hours. But in the initial management, two, four, six hours that we're talking about, the nebulized does just as well as any of the other routes. But more importantly, you get the benefit of the vasoconstriction from it. So here's a nice mechanism where you can give a medicine that will improve their strider and you don't have to do anything else to the kid. And some of these kids tolerate the nebulizers very, very well. You don't have to try and get this kid who's coughing and gagging to keep down their decadron and you can give them the oral decadron a little bit later. So yeah, it does work better. And we're talking about the acute management. If you're going to tell me that after I treat this kid with nebulized decadron, croup's going to last for three days, I ought to give him some PO as well. No argument. They should get the PO as well to take care of the next two days. But for their stay in the emergency department, especially if they are symptomatic when they come in, it's not just a barky cough. Nebulized decadron is therapeutically effective in decreasing their strider. You're suggesting giving nebulized dexamethasone to every single patient who comes in with croup. That's how you started out this conversation. But that's not necessary. If they're requiring the vasoconstriction of racemic epinephrine, you want to make the argument that you can augment that racemic epinephrine with some nebulized dexamethasone. Maybe I'll buy into it. We can look for a study that actually demonstrates that that's correct. But that's not really what you're suggesting. You're saying little Jimmy who walks in with a barky cough, you're saying they're going to get nebulized dexamethasone and oral dexamethasone and then be sent home when there's absolutely no data to indicate that they need that nebulized dexamethasone. If you've taken care of enough kids, you can either have them sit around barking and disrupting the lady with the chest pain, or you can go ahead and give them the nebulized decadron, take care of their barking, take care of what little strider they have. They improve symptomatically. They get their additional oral dose so that they don't come back seven. 72 hours later, out the door they go. Now, you know as well as I do, Al, that the dexamethasone, whether it's given orally or nebulized, does not resolve the barky cough. In fact, I know for a fact that the anticipatory guidance that you give them is that the barky cough is likely to persist for a few days. And that's not the reason we're giving the dexamethasone in the first place. We're giving it to try and prevent progression of disease, to try and prevent them from having to come back to medical care, and to help it resolve in a timely fashion over the course of the next couple of days. There is no shot that nebulized dexamethasone is resolving croup. And if you want to talk about not disturbing the old lady with chest pain next door, the way to do that is to discharge that patient within five minutes after they've gotten their oral dose of dexamethasone. Smackdown. 
I feel like I'm talking to my little guys here. So boys, boys, you're both right. Nobody's wrong. Everyone's trying to do the right thing for the patient. We all know that steroids work. We all know that dexamethasone is great. We all know there's a variety of doses. But in terms of nebulized steroids, we have very few studies. They're very small and they have conflicting outcomes. And I only found one study that looked at the addition of a nebulized steroid to an oral steroid, and that didn't show additional benefit, but that was using nebulized bundesonide. I haven't found a single study looking at nebulized dexamethasone on top of oral dexamethasone. So it is kind of an interesting, unexplored area. But there's a reason for not exploring it, Eileen. The reason is that the oral steroid alone has such amazing outcomes that to detect a difference by adding a nebulized steroid would be nearly impossible. It would likely require hundreds of thousands of patients to detect that difference because oral steroids alone are tremendously effective. The difference is if you're hoping to resolve symptoms in a child and you're giving them the oral dexamethasone and sending Barky Jimmy out the door is one thing. If you want to get rid of Jimmy's barky cough and any strider that they have, nebulized decadron works excellently. We see it. I mean, if you're telling me that you can't use it until somebody does a randomized controlled trial with it, that's fine. But I'm going to tell you clinically in our department, we've seen it work for decades now. And it's been a standard for us. Maybe it's where we practice two different populations. All the exploding children. Yes, exactly. When little Jimmy exploded with his barking cough. We should just nebulize some diazepam for the woman with chest pain next door and get (laughs) her some earplugs that this whole problem is solved because it's really all about her. I do treat barky kids without Strider, get nebulized Decadron, and I do see it have an effect. Their cough goes away. You give them the PO because that's the appropriate treatment. You could just say it as it is. Uh, No, because I I do like to take care of patient's symptoms. Smackdown. We are not resolving this one uh, amicably. You you might as well end it now before somebody really gets hurt. Okay, let's just totally avoid any discussion of the severe croup patients because (laughs) I don't think I can take it anymore. I'm worried about both of you exploding right now. I would like to agree that I had a lot of fun. This was actually great for me. It's never occurred to me to nebulize dexamethasone. And I think that maybe what I might try is next time I have one of those sort of persistent croups that is very stridulous and having a lot of trouble. And I'm thinking, gosh, I don't really know what to do next short of intubation. This is a really bad scenario. Maybe I'll give it a try and just see what happens. I mean, it can't hurt at that point. And if I have a great outcome, then we can have another fantastic discussion about it. If you have racemic epinephrine in your Pyxis, then go ahead and use it. If you have no racemic epinephrine and you're a center that uses code cart epinephrine for croup, fantastic. And if you're in a tough situation, like maybe in urgent care, you can just grab that epinephrine off the code cart and nebulize 0.5 mLs per kilo And you're going to do at least the same job as you're doing with the racemic epinephrine. And so that is an option if that is the option that you have. That certainly makes sense to me. All right, let's get into it. (laughs) Testicles seem to have a much longer survival time than what the literature supported or, or what the literature stated. That's right. We're survivors, baby. And so I would have patients come in or I would see reports of patients that had had testicular torsion for days and survived. <laughs> That's none other than Dr. Larry Mellick of Procedure Video fame. And we haven't spoken with Larry in about five years. Last time was back in August 2018, talking about testicular torsion. We are revisiting that topic today with some updates 
as well as some reminders of areas that Larry thinks we are continuing to think about wrongly. As I dug into the literature, I found out that there was just article after article that, that reported testicle torsions that survived for far, far longer than six hours. And in the meantime, you know, I've had at least four patients now, one as of just like two weeks ago, that have had torsions for at least 70 hours who have had testicular survival. This has become a mission for me because I just think that the six-hour time frame that is so commonly taught is dangerous. And what happens is you have a patient that presents with 24 hours of testicular pain, and they're in your waiting room. The natural response that I frequently hear is, that testicle's dead. There's no big rush to get this patient into a room. We'll get them in here when we can. I think it's important to get the word out there that you have to give every testicle a chance. Damn right. And that means getting them quickly evaluated, getting an ultrasound as fast as you can, documenting the, the presence or absence of blood flow, and then as quickly as possible, do an intervention. In other words, the lesson here is never give up on a testicle. Amen to that. We may be down, but we're not out. So why is it that some of these testicles, even with four or five hours of no flow time are dead and other torse testicles will survive for 24, 60, 70 hours out? First of all, I don't think there's any testicle that dies in five or six hours. And I think the studies that say that there's like a 3% death rate within six hours, I think there's more to that story. I think it has to do with patients who weren't feeling any pain and arrived within that six hour time frame. And by the time they arrived, the testicle was dead or was just starting to hurt because of the inflammatory factors. We do know that the longer the testicle is torsed, the greater number of turns or degrees of torsion will increase the chance of poor outcome. And then it's the thickness of the spermatic cord that I think makes a difference. The thickness of the spermatic cord changes the twist. In other words, they call it the helix. It's that twisted part and that the helix of a very thin spermatic cord is very short, and so it's very effective at cutting off blood flow. On the other hand, a thick spermatic cord with a long helix actually allows some persistent blood flow that allows these testicles to survive for longer periods of time. The bottom line I think that everyone should take away is that there isn't a time cutoff after which that testicle is non-viable. Like you said, every testicle deserves the opportunity for revascularization. And I think we hear it on both sides, Larry, both the patient who says, I've had pain for 24 hours, and so no one's really rushing to get the ultrasound. But then also when we find the torsion, one of the first questions we get asked by our consultants is, how long has it been? And sometimes we see things just slow down as soon as we say, well, it's been eight hours, or it's been 10 hours, or they've had pain for the last day or so. And I think that's where we really have to push and say, I know they've had pain for a long time, but that duration doesn't necessarily tell us that that testicle is going to be non-viable. As long as we keep that in the back of our head, I think we can do the right thing for the patient. Larry, you published a systematic review of cases of testicular torsion. What did you find there in terms of the time of viability? We found that zero to six hours, there was a 97% survival rate. And then every six hours, there was like a 20% drop. So seven to 12 hours was 79.3, or let's just say 80%. And then 13 to 18 hours was 60%. 
and 19 to 24 hours was 40%. And then 25 to 48 hours, the survival rate was about 24%. And then greater than 48 hours, it was uh, 7.4%. Truth in advertising here is these survivals many times are not pretty. I mean, you have atrophy, you have calcifications when you look at these testicles with ultrasound. These many times are badly damaged testicles. But nevertheless, the survival rate is far, far greater than six hours. And that's the word that's just got to get out there is let's just stop. Let's just stop this messaging that's wrong. Uh, and that's, I think, frankly, it's resulting in dead testicles that, that could have survived. The greatest tragedy of life. Larry, let's talk a little bit about that pain. Sometimes patients don't experience pain the way we think they should. The textbook tells us this should be extremely painful and that the patients should present soon after that pain starts because it is so painful. But your research and publications tell us that the pain associated with testicular torsion is a little bit more complicated. In multiple cases I have reviewed, you know, the patient had a, a severe onset of pain, went to the emergency department, was misdiagnosed, and was sent home. The patient would just hang around at home, slept all night, and then a day or three later, started to have some worsening pain. They returned with this gait that I best describe as a saddle sore cowboy. And it just, it just didn't make sense to call this a torsion, detorsion scenario. The testicle was dead. One of the things that I find very commonly is I have young men come to the pediatric ED who have dead testicles and I'll say, does it hurt? No, it's not hurting. Only if you bump it or touch it does it hurt. So I had a series of these patients and I wrote this paper called Testicular Torsion Pain Honeymoons. Essentially what that described is this event of absent pain. Why this happens, the afferent fibers for the scrotal contents run in the spermatic cord. As that spermatic cord twists, that nerve is also compromised in the process. They no longer are feeling sensation because that nerve has uh, been compressed and compromised. Only when the inflammatory factors of a dying testicle starts to irritate the other areas of the scrotum, which are innervated by other nerves, do you actually start to suddenly feel pain again. Finally, Larry, let's talk about how to actually detorse that testicle. And we are going to get into this new technique, the testicular torsion traction technique. Oh, that sounds fancy. But before we get there, I got to ask, do we need a new technique for detorsion or can we rely on what we've all been taught, the open book approach for detorsion? Swami, we absolutely don't need to move away from the traditional detorsion technique. That works perfectly well when it works. I mean, manual detorsion of the torse testicle is usually simple and quick, and it can be easily performed by anyone. Unfortunately, there's a subset of torse testicles for which manual reductions are not simple, quick, or easy. Go ahead, try the standard open book technique. It works, but when it doesn't work, you need a backup. That's where the torse testicle traction technique comes in. So our standard technique can still be used, but I think we kind of need a step-by-step -step approach. So you have the patient in front of you that you think that testicle is torsed. You've got ultrasound either at bedside or if you've gone with the patient to get that ultrasound done, walk us through your process of reducing that testicle. So what I do is I go ahead and start the open book technique, the external rotation of either right or left testicle. And if I run into a hard stop or I get resistance, then I try and go the other way. 
if pain's worsening and the patient's protesting and I get some resistance, that's when I move into the torse testicle traction technique. Essentially, what you do is you grasp the testicle with one or both hands, oh, hey. and then you stretch it its maximum length. Is this legal? And you can observe whether the testicle spins or flips after that stretching procedure. As you stretched the testicle and the spermatic cord as far as you can, then you begin unraveling that testicle. And again, you're doing the external rotation. But if you find you're meeting resistance or seem to be making things worse, then, then you obviously have to go the opposite direction. Resistance of any kind generally means that your reduction maneuver was in the wrong direction. And then after that, you ultrasound the testicle to confirm a return of blood flow. What's interesting with this particular technique is that you actually will see a return of blood flow even before you do the detorsion procedure. This physiologically just makes so much sense. You're stretching that tightly wrapped spermatic cord. You're lengthening that helix or that area of twist. And consistently, I have seen blood flow return a modicum. It's not the best until you actually then continue with your unraveling of the testicle. So that traction technique, really, it, it's like those old phone cords. I know nobody has any more because we've all got cordless and, and who's using a home phone anyway, but those old phone cords, they would always twist up. But if you pulled them, if you stretched them, they would just unravel on their own. And so what we're saying is that we're going to pull that helix of that twisted spermatic cord to length, and then we can rotate to open that book a little bit more to really unravel the spermatic cord completely. But just pulling to length can return some blood flow. It's not the definitive procedure, but Larry, we never think about our approach to detorsion in the ED as the definitive procedure. All of those patients need a urologic evaluation and to go to the operating room for orcoplexy or whatever else the urologist is going to do. So we know that we're not fixing the situation completely, but this just gives us another approach when our initial technique doesn't work. I think that's what's really important here. Hey, sorry to interrupt, but what the youngins may not realize is that phones uh, used to do one thing, make phone calls, couldn't take pictures, and they were connected to the wall with the long cord. Nowadays, they got the newfangled wireless phones. Wouldn't that be great, a wireless testicle? You'd never worry about torsion ever again. I'd love to be wireless. Summary. There are two dogmatic teachings that we need to eliminate from our brains. The first is that the testicle is gone if it's been over six hours of torsion. Your systematic review goes through this and really shows that even up to 24 hours, there is a significant number of testicles that are viable. And even out to 48 hours, there's still a lot of testicles that can still be salvaged. And so we can't give that cutoff of six hours and say, oh, it's been more than six hours, nothing to do here. And then also relying on the pain and understanding that that pain can come and go. The pain might not be there initially, or the pain at rest might not be there initially, but it's when that testicle is handled or there's any kind of contact with it that we get pain. So we can't always just rely on pain to give us this diagnosis. And then once we do make the diagnosis with ultrasound, we're going to use these techniques to unravel that cord. We can start with the open book technique. If that doesn't work, or if we're not seeing the same reduction or resumption of flow that we want, then we can add to that, that testicular traction, pull that cord to length, and then unravel. I hope that having this additional technique will there'll be an explosion of confidence in emergency providers to actually try manual detorsion. So long, everybody. Remember, we're survivors. Don't count us out. 
Every testicle deserves a chance. <laughs> oh, hey there, MRAP. Ovary here. Uh, just wanted to mention that I, the ovary, was not invited for last month's piece on ovarian torsion. Just because we're not hanging around in your face doesn't mean our voices aren't equally important. Thank you. Hanging around in your face? A little bit of an exaggeration, don't you think? We're nowhere near the face. Hey, we have a 62-year-old male with right-sided weakness and slurred speech. He's unable to move his right arm and leg. And EMS rolls in with this patient, and they have already called ahead and said it's a possible stroke, which immediately sets off triage and your stroke workflow. But it's still up to you to determine if this could be a stroke, and if you need to move towards advanced imaging, or if this patient actually needs a very different pathway. This makes the hallway or EMS structure evaluation critical which brings us to the rapid neuro exam, a topic covered by our very own Scott Kobner last year at MRAP1, but we really need to explore this topic even further because it may be the most vital part of that initial assessment. So Scott, when you say rapid neuro exam, what exactly are we talking about? What's really hard for us to conceptualize sometimes about this exam is it's not the exam that you learned in medical school. It's not the type of exam that you will go on to perform later in this patient's care and you're answering a simple question. Is there a reasonable chance that this patient's complaint can be explained by an acute lesion in their brain that requires us to do some further imaging and neuro evaluation because it could be a stroke? Should we activate the coach stroke? As part of this process, we have to be very, very sensitive to make sure we catch any potential acute lesion that's taking place in the brain. But we also have to realize that there are limitations in this environment. And so we're not trying to get 100% specificity here. We're just trying to pass this margin to say, yeah, we got to activate the code stroke. So this involves kind of a peripheral view of many systems of the brain to make sure that everything seems to be functioning well enough to make this decision. Stroke is such a serious diagnosis. And like you said, we focus so much of our resources on identifying these strokes, getting them to therapy. There's a huge amount that comes with that. Once we notify or, or activate that stroke code, a lot is going to happen. Knowing all of that, shouldn't we be slowing our exam down? Isn't a rapid approach and a rapid assessment a bad idea? We're kind of placing this impossible decision where we have a limited amount of time based on, you know, the year 2022 or current evidence and stroke treatment guidelines about which patients might qualify for certain therapies. We have different benchmarks for we need to obtain neuroaxial imaging and make certain decisions. So we have to have a little bit of leeway and set a threshold for when we're going to progress the patient down this code stroke or code brain pathway. All of these patients, whether or not you say, yes, they are a code stroke candidate or they're not a code stroke candidate, at some point in their evaluation need a detailed diagnostic neurologic examination when we slow down. But here up front in ambulance triage in the hallway on the EMS gurney, we're balancing this pragmatic approach where we're taking some accuracy and time when deciding who to work up further because overactivation of code strokes is bad and can lead to missed alternative diagnoses, a lot of wasted resources, especially if you're working at a place that only has one CT scanner or you're calling in resources for a cath lab. And under-recognition of strokes obviously is a huge problem too because we're losing out on potential treatable or you know risk-modifiable cerebrovascular accidents. We're trying to take the symptoms the patient has and localize them to the brain. And that's what's going to set us off down that code stroke pathway. But these patients come in with neuro signs or, or symptoms that can sometimes be hard to shove into those boxes. So when you have that patient who comes in with those neuro complaints, how do you determine this is brain versus this is periphery? 
the things that I look for are fortunately our least favorite part of medical school, at least for me, and I'm interested in this stuff, it's our neuroanatomy. So we're looking for pathognomonic signs, things that only the brain can do. And when these functions stop working, we know that there has to be a lesion somewhere in the brain. The flagship for these, right, are, are so-called cortical signs. And we've heard about these before, but the three most important ones are going to be aphasia, vision deficits, and neglect. And these are things you can easily assess at the bedside with patients in the busy hallway by just talking to them and spending a few extra seconds there to specifically look for some of these findings. So aphasia, you know, the most important thing we need to figure out when talking to the patient, are they truly aphasic? Do they have a problem with language processing and speech creation? Or is it a motor dysfunction? Is it dysarthria, which is often confusing for folks? So I ask patients to name two objects like my watch, pen, a shirt, whatever. Repeat a simple phrase. How are you doing today? Today is a Monday. And then follow a command. So just tell them, can you raise your right hand and close your eyes without demonstrating it to them? And if those three things are in fact, we know that their language processing is preserved. For vision, a little bit more straightforward in some sense. We remember a confrontational visual field testing, part of the whole big exam. We're really looking for homominous heminopsia. So Basically, our one entire field of vision cut out. Is it the left side or the right side? You know, up to 70% of large vessel occlusions will have this. Very simple. You're putting your fingers up halfway between you and the patient and asking, can you see two fingers on one side? Can you see one finger on the other? You've got your basic visual exam done. And then neglect, that last parietal lobe finding. Part of this is seeing that the patient's not looking at you, not responding to you. They have a gaze preference or deviation. But the way I really assess this is I start half of my exam on the left side of the bed, half of my exam on the right side of the bed. And, you know, in this rapid setting, you're not going to be 100% perfect about obsessing neglect because let's say the person has a sensory deficit on one side or a previous stroke or something else that's going on. But just being cognizant of the fact that this is a cortical finding and it could be part of a larger stroke syndrome is important at this point. It's a really nice simplified approach with the aphasia and the vision. The neglect, I think, is the one that sometimes confuses us, trips us up. Switching sides of the bed makes a lot of sense, especially as you're rolling off to CT. It's kind of easy to move from one side of the bed to the other as you're assessing the patient. So we want to look for those core signs. But Scott, when I typically think about stroke, I think about the motor and sensory findings. So my leg doesn't work. My arm doesn't work. But that's not what you focused on for identifying this as a stroke. Why is that? Why are you skating over those motor and sensory findings? It's not that I'm skating over them so much. I appreciate you calling it out like that because they're really important. But I start with the cortical stuff because we're not classically trained to think about them. And they're the most localizing findings on a brain exam, right? There's, you know, if your right arm doesn't work, it's a poorly localizing finding. Is it a brachial plexus injury? Do you have a spinal cord injury? Maybe you just have Todd's paralysis. But if you're aphasic, I know that there's a problem in the brain. And like we said at the top of the segment, we're looking for problems in the brain in particular. That being said, of course, we're still going to do a rapid assessment of some motor and sensory findings within keeping in mind that they're not super specific. And we're just answering the question, is there a reasonable chance that there is a stroke? So we're not pushing thrombolytics or doing an endovascular intervention at this step if they just have right upper extremity weakness. That's acute onset. And so my high yield motor exam maneuvers are going to be still doing part of like the stroke scale score, all that good stuff. But I'm looking for subtle weakness, too. You know, those patients that come in within 30 minutes of onset of weakness. Pronator drift is one of the most sensitive physical exam findings. 
and it's probably the most high-yield motor exam maneuver. When you ask the patient to close their eyes, put both of their arms in extension up above their head if you can, and keep their hands in supination. And you're just looking for that very subtle switch to pronation. Patients that have that oftentimes as the first motor exam finding for large vessel occlusions, really, really helpful. The other thing you could do is a finger roll maneuver. If you can imagine yourself taking your two pointer fingers, pointing them at each other and orbiting them around, almost like you're doing like a a little bit of a shuffle dance, individual finger rolls. And you'll see if patients have weakness on one side, the side that's weaker will appear to stand still or move slower and the other finger will orbit that finger. Really helpful for that subtle weakness on this exam. The sensory exam, you know, here is a, a thing that you have to really trust what the patient's telling you because you can't really, at least in the hallway setting of the emergency department, you can't really objectively evaluate sensory changes. You can do pinpricks, stuff like that. I don't carry, you know, ice cubes in my pocket, Swami. I'm not doing temperature <laughs> testing. I leave my tuning fork at home. So what I'm really asking if things feel equal on both sides. And if patients say no, you know, I'm going to believe them in this very critical early diagnostic moment. Because we often forget about these thalamic stroke syndromes, which are subcortical strokes, and they're misdiagnosed because they're just sensory in nature. You and I both work at comprehensive stroke centers where we have everything available. We can get that CT, CTA, CT perfusion, get them off for endovascular therapy. Many, in fact, most of our listeners don't work in a place like that, and they have to make the decision, should I transfer this patient? I can give lytics. I can do the basic stroke management at my place. But if I think that this patient has a large vessel occlusion, they need to go to the big shop. So how do we make that determination? How do we decide who needs to be transferred instead of staying with us for further care? It's like a blessing and a curse to work at a comprehensive stroke center, because I feel like if we, you know, diluted TPA with D50, we'd cure all acute neuro deficits (laughs) at our center for how much we sometimes end up pushing these medications. But we do have an incredible amount of resources for when we're unsure. And if you're out there working in a community site, and the decision is transfer or not, there's a lot of resources involved in mobilizing that patient, and you have to be pretty confident that this is the right decision. And so there are some screening tools and exams that have been developed over the past few years to help figure out if a patient has a large vessel occlusion, right? And that's the thing we're chasing after, to get that patient to that endovascular retrieval center, can pull that clot out at a proximal place, and hopefully restore some of their function. And so the way I like to think about it is, you know, pretty simplistic. I love pizza. I think the brain is like a slice of pizza. And at the crust, that's all that cortical function that we talked about, that aphasia, vision, neglect, and all the great cheese and sauce. Those are our subcortical fiber tracks. And, you know, how do I eat a slice of pizza? I'm from New York. Obviously, I fold it in half because I'm a civilized person. He speaks the truth. That's right. (laughs) I know you're the same way, Swami, you know. If you're out there with a fork and knife, I'm sorry. That's just not how it's done. No, don't even try it. Don't even write it. But we eat the slice of pizza right from the tip to the crust. So if you have a proximal large vessel occlusion, you can imagine the entire slice of pizza is going to be affected. So all those subcortical things, those fiber highways, including all your motor and sensory functions are going to go, but then also the crust is going to be gone and you're going to have those cortical symptoms. So the van assessment tool really incorporates that idea, and it's been shown to be pretty great in the pre-hospital setting, and it's useful, I think, for us to know about. And basically, the assessment is what we've been talking about. You're looking for vision, aphasia, or neglect, those cortical findings, and then you're just looking for upper extremity weakness. And so if a patient has either vision or aphasia or neglect plus upper extremity weakness, there's a pretty good chance that they have a large vessel occlusion, or at least at this point, there's a high enough concern that they should be considered to be transferred to an endovascular center so we can maybe get some additional studies and pull that clot out. 
We discussed the van tool with Evie Marcolini a while back. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. But probably the most important thing that you said in there, Scott, is the correct way to eat pizza, which is to fold it in half and then eat from the tip to the crust. Dean and Tony here, hey. we just wanted to say thank you, you for uh, yes. shouting out to the New York crowd. True New York representation. We, yeah, absolutely. And we can agree that yes. the best way to eat pizza is from tip to crust. Fold, fold it. it in half. Exactly. Fold it up. Walk down the street. Do got you got stuff, stuff to, do. to yeah. do. Do it on the go. Make sure to use the word abomination, please. And frankly, if you're doing it any other way, it's, it's an, an abomination. abomination it, is. Right? it is. It truly is. Scott, we've talked about the cortical signs, we've talked about the motor, we've talked about the sensory, but we still haven't touched on one part that is particularly challenging to us, and that's the posterior circulation. And we've talked about this many times that the stroke tools that we have are really designed to assess the anterior circulation. We've discussed the fact that many posterior strokes get missed because we're so focused on the anterior symptoms, but we have to make sure that we catch these posterior circulation strokes, so the brainstem and the cerebellum. So how are you approaching those patients? This is the patient that they bring back and they say, this patient is dizzy, so we want to activate a stroke code. And if we activate a stroke code on every dizzy patient, we're going to bankrupt the hospital system. So how do I take that dizzy patient and determine if I'm going down that route or not? You will absolutely bankrupt the hospital system. I'm sure, though, you will sleep very nice at night knowing that like, you never had to make any actual <laughs> decisions, right? You know, the posterior circulation of the brain is designed for one purpose, and it's to make our lives as emergency clinicians awful. It is beautifully complex, but super difficult in the clinical environment, especially keep in mind we're in this hallway, it's busy, or we're in that like medical screening exam room up in triage. It's not an ideal time to make one of these decisions. It's these dizzy patients that have subtle findings. You know, we even have the ICD-10 code for this is dizziness and giddiness. You know, these are the strokes that we miss, and all the literature in the last decade has shown that. These are the ones we really have to be cautious about. And, you know, there have been a lot of really great segments on this in MRAP over the years, and there's no magic bullet that will say, here, how to never miss one of these before. But I think there are a few key elements we can focus on as emergency physicians to be better at diagnosing these strokes. The first is actually starting with the history and understanding the acute spontaneous vestibular syndrome. When you look at the data about how the HINTS exam is performed in the hands of emergency physicians, we just don't receive enough education about when to apply it. So we're, every patient that comes in with dizziness or even syncope, we're trying to fit into this antiquated model of posterior stroke that really is inappropriate. And so taking some time to review the spontaneous vestibular syndrome, people that have a sudden onset and continuous sensation of vertigo and that have nystagmus that is present, those are the really high-risk people that you want to go after. The other thing is the HINTS exam in general. I know this is a controversial topic for a lot of folks, given data that's come out in the last you know, five years or so, but I'm a strong believer that we should practice the physical exam. We should really take some time to learn how to get better at it and to perform at the level of the expertise that we're consulting. You know, We should know at least one step beyond what our consultant has to offer that Swadron always says. And the same goes for our ability to perform exam maneuvers. So the way I help remember the HINTS exam is actually changing some of the letters around, not incredibly uh, professional maybe to say in every setting, but I call it the HIT exam. We got the <laughs> N for nystagmus, then I put my test of skew is just S for skew, and then the head impulse test. And that's to remind me that nystagmus is a key portion of this exam, and I shouldn't be applying it willy-nilly to patients that don't have continuous non-fatigable nystagmus that I can assess. And the way I do this assessment of nystagmus is something called the Penlight cover test. Because you remember our brains over millennia evolved to help us focus on points in space. And so our brains do a really good job of suppressing nystagmus if we focus on things. And so when we do the old exam maneuver of asking our patient 
to look at our finger and we like play the wiggle game and do do an H or whatever you're going to do. We're asking them to suppress spontaneous nystagmus. And the only way to truly assess whether or not they have nystagmus that's being suppressed is to essentially blind the patient so they can't focus on anything. And so this test, we'll make a video of it. You can look on MRAP HD called the Penlight Cover Test. Essentially, you're asking the patient to cover one eye with their hand, and you're taking a very strong source of light and blinding their other eye with the light. So then they can't focus on anything. So any suppressed nystagmus will become visible to you and it'll be spontaneous. And then you can turn the light on and off to see the nystagmus get suppressed. It's a really easy bedside maneuver that I actually find patients tolerate better than asking them to like follow your fingers sometimes and can really help you find some subtle nystagmus that you're missing. But I wish there was a short answer to this one. I wish I had the magic bullet to catch all posterior strokes. I will say this, if you have a high enough suspicion and they have high enough risk factors, it's probably at this point in time in 2022 worthwhile going the extra step for these folks and getting the diagnostic studies to help you out. Summary. I think the acute onset continuous nystagmus that you can then elicit when you do your testing, that's probably enough to go down the pathway or at least to initiate the consult. And then you can kind of back away from it. Now, if you have that maybe in a 22-year-old who has no risk factors, maybe you're not going to push ahead right away. But if I have an older patient who I know is a vasculopath who has other risk factors, then I might not even progress down the rest of that HINS pathway and just stop there and say, let's go ahead and get imaging. Let's have our consultant come to the bedside. With the younger patient, not to say that younger patients can't have strokes, but I'm going to finish the rest of that exam before I move down that pathway. That might be one of the things that we can do to help us to catch more of these But I think simply understanding what it means to have acute, spontaneous vestibular syndrome, the continuous nystagmus, those are kind of the key things in deciding to go down this pathway, as opposed to saying, this is just your run-of-the-mill dizziness that I'm going to work up in a very different way. You know, I think that's exactly right. And I think, again, remembering the 50,000-foot view here is we're not deciding to push TPA based on this exam. We're not deciding to go in there and pull out a clot. We're deciding that we need to do more diagnostic tests. We're going to activate your CT, maybe your MRI if you have one available, and you're going to get those resources to the bedside. That's not feasible to do for every single patient. So, you know, our threshold for pushing the patient in that direction is going to be lower than doing those other procedures that have much more considerable, you know, harms or potential harms to patients. And so we're still going to go back. We're going to walk that dizzy patient. We're going to do a cerebellar exam. And when their, you know, acute LVO patient gets back from that initial head CT, We're going to do the full, you know, every arm, five seconds, 10 seconds in the air and count that entire exam too in coordination with our consultants before we make those really high risk decisions. This is a great way for us to think about doing that initial exam, move the patient down that pathway. I love that you wrap it up by saying we're still going to finish the rest of our exam. This is just that first couple of minutes. And Scott, this really only takes a couple of minutes to do, which means it can be done while you're rolling to CT, while the patient is getting onto the CT table to get that initial non-contrast head CT done. And it gives us a ton of information then to work off of when we're calling our consultant or when we're deciding which way to go down. I think with this in our tool belt, we'll feel a lot more comfortable assessing those patients as they're walking in the door. Scott, thanks so much for going through all of this with us. I think it does really give us some good tools to take to the bedside the next time we have that roll in from EMS saying stroke-like symptoms and deciding which way to go. Thanks so much, Mommy. And people who eat pizza with knife and fork. Lazy. Yeah, exactly. Because if you're truly busy, you know, do you really have time to listen. sit down and use a knife and a fork? No. Exactly. Because uh-huh. we got stuff to do. That's, That's right. why you fold it in half. You're on the go. Exactly. 
And I gotta tell you, I'm pretty excited to know that the way we eat pizza is how you gotta look at the brain. Absolutely. Whatever. <laughs> That's <laughs> Whatever exactly that right. Whatever that means. That's <laughs> God knows what he's talking about. Because we don't. <laughs> uh, dear MRAP, not everybody is from New York. Give me that keyboard. Put that down. Stop writing stupid don't letters. Don't write stupid letters, okay? Especially, Especially not for this. And don't, you're wrong. It's because you're don't wrong. Don't write letters about pizza. Uh, how did you get into my house? You're wrong. Just deal with it. Okay, do it. <laughs> Kids do the strangest things. Not long ago, I was working in a fast track, and a mother brought in her four-month-old baby, who overall seemed fine but was really very fussy, and the mom showed me his left hand and his ring finger was... Well, it looked very unhappy, as unhappy as the kid. And the proximal part of the finger looked fine. And then there was this very sharp demarcation. And then the distal portion of his finger was really fat and red and angry. Not in an infection kind of way, but there was a clear demarcation right at that PIP flexor mark. And then something happened just so that the finger was totally ballooned and the baby was very upset. What do you think? What's going on here? Wow, yeah, I think I know what's going on. <laughs> UC Max listeners, I once again give you Dr. Chris Merritt, who's Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Pediatrics at Brown, and obviously knows where I'm going with this. Yeah, hey, Gita. So happy to be back with you. All right, so let's get back to this baby. It's a chubby thing. Fat, fat fingers, but one is really <laughs> fat at the distal end. And that sharp demarcation helps us make the presumption that this is probably a hair or a thread tourniquet. Am I right? It sounds like it. That description that you gave is classic for that. But it was so swollen that I could not see the hair, like even with magnification and with loops. I could see this one tiny spot when I was pulling apart the fat parts. It's almost like prying buttocks apart. I was trying to like, <laughs> see it. It's like, what's in here? And I thought there was like this fine line of a brown hair, like right in the PIP crease. But it was very hard to tell and was super swollen. Yeah. With these things, it's often you don't see it. You're like, I think that's in there somewhere. But Gosh, if I can find it, that'd be great. Let's do a little bit of background on hair tourniquets, and then we'll come back to this baby. So yeah. the problem with hair tourniquets is that it's not always a hair. You know, I guess it could be like a thread or something like that. But in yep. small babies, it tends to be that because of that maternal telogen effluvium, right? <laughs> That's like one of my favorite words, effluvium. <laughs> yeah, right. Basically, all that lovely, thick pregnancy hair starts to thin with the hormonal changes and then it gets shed and inevitably it gets on the floor and in the hairbrushes and in the laundry and on the baby. And somehow then that hair finds its way onto, I don't know why, they love fingers and genitals, but that's what happens. Who knows? Fingers and toes and private bits. Yes. So usually the child will present with pain or irritability, right? This is like one of those things that you are supposed to think about when you have a crying child and you don't know why they're crying. Yeah. But things then go downhill if they're not diagnosed and treated. So what are the dangers of undiagnosed hair tourniquets? Well, what happens is, and I'm not sure I fully understand the mechanics of this, right? But somehow a hair or a couple of hairs gets wrapped around the digit and it just works its way spiraling tighter and tighter and closer and closer to deeper and deeper into the, like you said, the soft, chubby finger flesh. <laughs> and it's a mystery to me how it happens. But it does happen, and it eventually can cause such a constriction that you can have tissue ischemia distal to the tourniquet or even bony erosion or infection as a result. And this is, we should say, usually in the very, very young child or baby. Yeah, it commonly happens in about 
three months or four months of age, mm-hmm. as you described, that's when maternal hair tends to fall out and that's when it gets wrapped around baby parts. Hmm. I guess I should mention that there is a risk of this in developmentally delayed older children who have trouble verbalizing. It could be a hair from anywhere or a thread or whatever if they can't really tell what happened. And there have also been very regrettable cases of older children who apply something or their caregiver applied some kind of tight elastic band to the penis to avoid bedwetting. Please never do this. Gosh, yeah. And I've heard stories of that, but I thank goodness I've not seen that myself. But it's certainly something to keep in mind. Yeah. And those children, I presume you would be referring for a child safety evaluation? Yeah, for sure. If that was something that that was of concern, you should have a really low threshold to reach out to those specialists and those services. So what about if this child came in and it wasn't so new? I've heard that sometimes they can kind of get buried under the skin. You can get epithelialization on top of that. Is that true? Yeah, that can happen. This tightening thread gets so deep within the skin that eventually causes some skin breakdown and the body's healing response is to epithelialize over it. And that can be tricky. Wow. So hair tourniquets can happen on the digits. You know, that's probably where you most frequently see it. We just mentioned that it can happen on the genitals. It's easier to envision it happening on a penis than the female genitals, but there are absolutely reports of clitoral and labial hair tourniquets as well. Yeah, and I actually saw a young baby girl with a labial hair tourniquet not just a few weeks ago. We're going to get back to that because that's kind of a special scenario, Mm -hmm. but I want to get back to my lovely fat baby (laughs) in the fast track. It was so cute. Back to the case. This baby had no signs of digital ischemia, which was great. Could not really see the hair, though. And so it surprised my staff what I asked for next. (laughs) So I thought that this would make a great learning case. You know what I asked for, don't you? I do. Normally, we have a spare bottle of Nair or some other depilatory agent hanging around in our pediatric emergency department for just this purpose. Yes, Nair to remove the hair, right? I think there are other brands out there, Veet, Magic Shave, something like that, but some kind of chemical depilatory hair removing cosmetic agent is actually first line treatment for these. Yeah, and it's invariable that somebody will start singing the commercial jingle from the 80s about Oh, I don't think I remember that. Can you refresh my memory? Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) They actually make life a lot better if you have them stocked. We do not have that stocked which is sort of problematic. Yeah, we have it in the little metal suitcase that hides under the desk that also contains pliers and Motrin for the staff and whatnot. It's a good idea. So I had to look up before this how it actually works. And so what I learned is that chemical depilatory agents contain thioglycolates and they disrupt the disulfide bonds in the hair and they dissolve the hair into some sort of gelatinous thing that then you can just sort of wipe or scrape away, mm-hmm. right? Pretty yeah. cool. Like, go science. Yeah, absolutely. They're similar to some of the hair straightening agents that you might see as well. Oh, fascinating. But for that reason, it's important to remember, though, that because they work on that very specific bond, they work on hair really well, but they don't necessarily work on some of the other filaments that might cause this injury. Right. Oh, yeah. So they're not going to work on a thread. Correct. Or something like that. Okay. Well, regardless, we did not have any nair. <laughs> so I was asking around for it, and the nurses are like, why do you need that, like, right now? I was trying to explain it, and um, I couldn't get any. But then my staff was so intrigued that one of the techs who was sitting at the desk and actually working as a secretary 
said like, oh, you know, I, I have some at home and my mom is at home. Like maybe I could just tell her to bring it in. I live five minutes away. And I was like, sure, you know, call your mom. So she, actually, this is very funny. She called her mom and it was just hysterical because the mom was absolutely willing to bring it over. And then she asked like, how hairy is this baby that this is an emergency? <laughs> anyway, that was a side bit of levity. But she did bring it over in like five minutes and it was like a nice unopened box of Nair. And so we applied it. And now everybody came to watch because they were like, what the heck is Dr. Pensa doing? Right. And so, but we, you know, basically the box says you like put it on, you leave it on for a few minutes. And the hardest part was keeping it on the finger because the baby was busy. Yeah. Keeping the finger out of the mouth of the baby and whatnot. Exactly. Very busy baby. And so I was like, mom, this is a very important job. You are going to keep this finger isolated. Yeah. You know, I set up the timer on, on her phone. And then came back and I wiped it off. And it's not like super dramatic because it takes a little while for the edema to start resolve. But you could tell. Yeah. Like you could tell all of a sudden the pinch was not as you know significant. Yeah. The cinching of the finger wasn't as significant. And then all of a sudden the color started to change and the edema would stick around for a while. But it was very clear. And I tried to look at it again with loops and it was very clear that it was gone. And it was pretty. And actually there was a little piece of a hair then that came off with the wiping. Yeah. And that was really... Very satisfying. Yeah, and then confirms that that's what you're dealing with. Exactly. Secondary treatment options. If I had not been able to ask someone's mom to bring the Nair into the fast track or the urgent care, I might have been a little stuck. If I actually could see the hair, though, what would be my next step to try to remove it mechanically? Do you have any tricks for us? Yeah, there's a few things. You know, if you can see especially an end of a hair, then you can just very carefully just try to essentially unwind it from the finger Mm. if you're lucky enough to be able to see that. And using some fine forceps or like a hemostat or something like that just to sort of unravel it if you can. The other thing that I use could be any number of things. We have a little suture cutter, which is kind of like a scalpel in reverse. So it has a curved edge and the concave edge is sharp. Mm. If you can hook that underneath it, but you could use a scalpel or a scissors as well underneath mm-hmm. the hair. With the blade facing up to see if you could just kind of get under it. Correct. Cutting away from the digit. Yeah. Very hard when there's a ton of edema, but yeah. Yeah. So it's only if you can really see it. Yeah. But that sometimes works. And that doesn't necessarily relieve the entire tourniquet, but it gives you a loose end to work with. Okay. Now, we have to go back, and I said that we were going to talk about the female genital tract, these clitoral or labial tourniquets, and how they're sort of a special case, because you cannot use chemical depilatory agents on those areas, because you're really not supposed to use them on any mucosal surface, correct? That's the general teaching, is to avoid mucosal contact with those. There's some controversy about how concerned you need to be about that, but in general, the recommendation is to avoid the mucosa. So how did you deal with your little baby patient that had the labial hair tourniquet? We were lucky enough that we were able to see a tiny bit of the hair and doing just what we described. We were able to get a blunt probe underneath it and then cut across the blunt probe so that we could get a loose end and then we were able to unravel it. Okay. It was delicate work. I was definitely nervous. (laughs) So it would be very reasonable, I feel like, to transfer that child. I think so, yeah. I think any time when you see... When it's in an anatomic location where you feel like you might cause more harm than good, or if you're concerned that there really truly is tissue ischemia, those would be reasonable cases to refer in. Okay. All right. So I think that's really important to know. So just to sort of recap, these depilatory agents like Nair are actually your first line go-to if you think it's a hair. 
and it's on a digit or the penis, Mm -hmm. but to try and shy away from mucosal surfaces and to have a low threshold for having a a specialist deal with this if it involves the female genital tract or it's something that you don't think that you're going to be able to fix. If it's a hair and you can't see it and there doesn't work, then this is a child who's going to need someone with, you know, surgical skills to take it off. Yeah, because the surgical process is not pretty. It's effective, but it's not pretty. Yeah. And you'll really, if you if you are in one of those scenarios where you had that epithelialization over, then you're probably really going to need a surgeon. Yeah, for certain, for certain. Tips for prevention. What kind of tips do you offer parents to try to keep this from happening again? Gosh, it's tough, right? Because it's not like you can shave your head. <laughs> you could, but please don't. It, you don't you really don't need to. <laughs> I think that might be a bit extreme. I think it's especially in the early postpartum period and the first few months postpartum when women are at highest risk for this type of hair loss. It's just a matter of doing your best to whether it's frequent brushing of the hair or doing that in a separate place from where you're handling the baby's clothes, for instance. And, you know, one interesting thing, in addition to sort of brushing and disposing of any hair that comes off on the brush, I've heard folks recommend turning the baby's clothes inside out to avoid the exposure when you wash them, to avoid sort of the exposure to the inside of the clothing. Oh, that makes sense, right? Because baby's clothes are often like cozy, fuzzy materials, and they would very happily trap hair and lint and threads and things like that. Absolutely. And then, you know, if this is a concern, you know, washing the baby's clothes separately from the adult's clothes, if possible. And then just, you know, keeping an eye out for things. And, you know, the earlier, as with so many things, the earlier you catch it, the better. And so moms and babies are, spend a lot of time together. And so just taking a look at the fingers and toes and, you know, you change diapers all the time. And so just being aware that that's a possibility. Awesome. You know what? It's nice to talk about like a happy ending story with like a often low acuity situation once in a while. <laughs> Absolutely. We had a very happy ending. Baby was very happy. Mommy was very happy. Everybody went home happy, which is great. Yeah, that's the best kind of ending there is. Are you sure you don't want to sing us the song? No, I'm pretty sure I don't. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cardiology Corner! With your host, Dr. Amol Matu. Let's drop into another recent article. This is Guidelines for Reasonable and Appropriate Care in the Emergency Department Grace Recurrent Low Risk Chest Pain in the ED. This is by Paul Musi and a number of folks that we know pretty well, including Fernanda Bellolia, Mike Gottlieb, Mark Probst, Jeff Klein, and Chris Carpenter. It's a veritable who's who of emergency medicine research. And these Grace publications are really well put together. They do extensive reviews of the literature. Back in May 2022, we discussed a chest pain update that was in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. People should check that out. We had some issues with some of the stuff that was in there. I think, though, that this group did a much better job in really defining the low-risk chest pain group, as well as what we should be doing in the emergency department for that group. I agree. You know that ACCAHA article from back in 2021 had some really, really useful points that we'll kind of allude to as we go through this discussion also. But I really like this Grace article, and I might be biased, but part of the reason that I think that this might in some ways be a little bit more useful is because it is entirely written by emergency physicians, which is not something you often get with the ACCAHA articles. And so I found this Grace article to be extremely relevant to our practice in the emergency department. 
let's start with how they define low risk and recurrent chest pain. This is really important because I think we have different definitions of that in our minds, but we need to agree on a uniform definition if we're going to use these guidelines. So how do they define that term? Well, generally speaking, they they talk about any of the validated accelerated diagnostic protocols. They specifically reference the heart score, the heart pathway, which is essentially heart score, but with two troponins over the course of three hours rather than the single troponin. And they also mentioned the Timmy score early on, but I don't think they came back to that. Probably any of the other validated accelerated diagnostic protocols can be used as well. One of the kind of more recent ones that I really like is the EDAX, the EDACS score, I think that we've talked about maybe in months past. And the accelerated diagnostic protocol essentially will portend a less than 1% or 2% risk of major adverse outcome at 30 days. I should mention in the beginning section of this article, they do include the heart score, although they then said that the heart score predicts about a 2% risk. And later in the article, they say that it's generally accepted that the acceptable miss rate for ACS should be less than 1%. So they later on kind of diss the the heart score and instead are are pushing a little bit more towards the heart pathway. And I, I think that's reasonable. I think there's more evidence to support the heart pathway, which is essentially two sequential troponins or, again, any other validated accelerated diagnostic protocol that gets you down to 1% or less. With that definition of the low-risk chest pain patient, let's get into the eight questions they go through. We're going to lump some of these questions together, but question one, in adult patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain, is a single troponin adequate or is serial troponin testing necessary to risk stratify a patient to a low risk of 30-day ACS? Yeah, so this this kind of goes to the, the point that I made a few minutes ago about the heart score versus the heart pathway. Heart score, meaning one conventional troponin, heart pathway is two. And what they say is that there is actually insufficient evidence for a single troponin if it's a conventional single troponin. But they say that if the patient's symptoms have been going on for more than three hours, you can get a single highly sensitive troponin. And if that highly sensitive troponin is negative, then that would risk stratify them to sufficiently low risk to go ahead and discontinue any further workup and send them home. Now, on the other hand, if it's not a highly sensitive troponin, or the symptoms have been less than three hours, then it would seem prudent at that point to go ahead and get a second troponin a couple of hours later. This is a really important point. So if the patient has three hours or more of pain, a single high sensitivity troponin can be enough to lower that risk to make that patient a low risk chest pain patient. If it's less than that amount of time, or if you're working with the traditional troponins, you're going to want to get serial troponins instead. Is that the right summary? That's exactly right. I'm going to skip question two just for a moment. We're going to circle back to it. Let's hit question three. In patients with recurrent low risk chest pain, should we be admitting to the hospital or placing in an ED observation bed or simply recommending outpatient follow-up within 30 days? All right. Well, here it, it becomes a little tricky. They say there's insufficient evidence versus in terms of admission versus discharge. Now, the caveat here is that note that the absence of evidence of benefit is not the same thing as saying there is evidence of absence of benefit. In other words, you know, there's no evidence that applying pressure on a bleeding carotid stab wound is associated with saving a life, but that doesn't mean 
that there is evidence to say that you shouldn't put direct pressure. Does that kind of make sense? Absolutely. The absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. That's exactly right. So even though there's no good evidence, that doesn't mean that you should go ahead and start admitting all of these patients. So again, it's a little bit of a hedge the way they describe it. I think they should have just come right out and said, don't do anything. Just send them home. <laughs> based on the ASEP clinical policy from a handful of years ago, and also based on the ACC AHA guideline from 2021 that we talked about, both of those endorse the concept of saying that, look, if you have risk stratified a patient to low risk, which is what this entire article is about, if you've risk stratified somebody to low risk, then it's appropriate to discharge that patient with no need for admission or OBS or even stress testing in the next 30 days. And I, I, I think that's where we are right now. So I don't know. I, you know, they're trying to be very scientific and say there's insufficient evidence, but you know what? Just, just send them home. Don't think so much about it. I think there's a lot more patients that we can safely send home because of all of this data that we've accrued over the last decade or so. Let's go back to question two, because question two, as well as four through six, really address what to do with the patient who has recurrent low-risk chest pain, but has had some type of provocative testing, whether that be stress or CAP or CCTA. Let's start with question two. In a patient with low-risk chest pain that has had a non-diagnostic or normal stress test in the last 12 months, should we send that patient for a repeat stress test? What they say is that if a patient has had a normal or non-diagnostic stress test within the last 12 months and they return with low-risk chest pain, they do not recommend repeat routine stress tests. Now, that's a little bit tricky. They're not saying that a normal stress test gives you a, a one-year warranty, so to speak. Remember that everything that we're talking about in this paper has to do with low-risk chest pain in the first place. And remember that, generally speaking, if somebody is stratified to low risk, we're not recommending stress testing regardless of whether they've had a prior stress test. So this, this question is, I think it's a little bit tricky and it almost makes you feel like, well, if a person's had a negative stress test in the past year, I don't need to repeat it. And that's not the takeaway. The takeaway is the following. If somebody is risk stratified to low risk, they don't need a stress test. I don't even care if they've had the normal stress test a year ago or not. The bottom line is, if they're stratified to low risk, you don't need to do the stress test. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think it makes a ton of sense. And if you have that patient risk stratified to low risk, they have a negative or a non-diagnostic stress test that was recent, but there's something in your head that's telling you, I don't know, I don't feel good about this chest pain patient. It doesn't mean that you can't do something else, but maybe stress test isn't the right next thing to do. I think that's also part of the message that we should be taking away from this listen to that spidey sense at times when it's going off, but maybe don't pursue the same testing they've already had. Yeah. And, and then the other thing, remember this patient for the third time is only dealing with low risk patients. If the patient comes back and during their repeat visit, you risk stratify them to intermediate or high risk based on their presentation, then you need to work them up. This paper is not addressing intermediate or high risk. It's only addressing low risk. So if the patient comes back and they're risk stratified to intermediate or high risk, then all bets are off. You can't rely on that old stress test. That's not what this paper is talking about, but that's what I'm going to say also. Let's move to question number four. What should be our recommendation if the low risk chest pain patient had a recent negative cardiac catheterization and they define negative recent cath as less than 50% stenosis? 
And that calf was in the last five years. First key point is that a negative calf with 30 or 40 or 50% occlusions is not the same thing as a clean 0% occlusion calf. So these are two different things. We'll, we'll deal with the latter in just a bit. If a person comes in with a calf that said, you know what, there are some occlusions, but it's less than 50%, there's really no good data addressing what to do with those patients. There's only one meta-analysis they talked about in a few retrospective observational studies. But again, we're only talking about low-risk patients. And what they say with these low-risk patients is that they recommend expedited outpatient testing as warranted, quote unquote. That's exactly what they say. So essentially what they're saying is that you don't need to admit these low-risk patients. They can be sent for outpatient evaluation and the outpatient primary or cardiologist can address whether they need to get any further workup. Question five goes a bit further. As you mentioned, it says they got a cath in the last five years and it was negative, negative, 0% stenosis, completely clean catheterization. How does that change our recommendations? Well, it doesn't really change the recommendation very much compared to what we just said about the patient that has some mild lesions. Again, they say there's not great evidence specifically looking at this question but they once again recommend, quote, expeditious outpatient evaluation as warranted, unquote, after discharge rather than inpatient evaluation. So once again, they're saying that if you've risk stratified the patient to low risk, these patients can be discharged and you can simply have them follow up with their outpatient physician for further evaluation. Now, just as a side note, remember when we talked about the 2021 ACC AHA guideline, that paper actually gave a two-year warranty to patients that had a clean cath. And you recall, I, I didn't really like You don't the like that, that word. You don't like that word, yeah, warranty. <laughs> uh, there, there are no warranties in, in medicine. But anyway, the, if somebody's had a truly clean cath, then that paper and some other literature says that the likelihood of them having recurrent or, or having ACS is enormously low, not zero, but enormously low. So I, I always think about that two-year pseudo-warranty and just outpatient evaluation. But again, the key point is if you've risk stratified them to low risk, they don't need admission or OBS or any immediate workup. Many places are moving towards CCTA for their evaluations. And question six takes that on really directly. What should we do with the patient who has had a CCTA that was negative, no coronary stenosis within the last two years? Does that change anything in their recommendations? There is probably... Um, more rapidly expanding evidence on coronary CTA even than, than cath. And once again, recall that in the 2021 ACCHA paper that we discussed previously, they gave that two-year warranty to these patients also. If you've had a truly clean, negative, nothing coronary CTA, no lesions at all, then they're saying that the likelihood of adverse outcome at two years is enormously low, nothing zero, but enormously low. And here in this paper, what they're saying is that, again, these patients don't need admission. If you've risk stratified them to low risk with a, at least a single negative, highly sensitive troponin, you can go ahead and discharge them for outpatient follow-up. Well, in a nutshell, when we look at question two and four through six, what we come back to is if you have a patient in front of you that you have risk stratified to the low risk group, it almost doesn't matter whether they had a cath, whether they had a stress, whether they had a CCTA. If you've risk stratified them to that low risk group, they can go home with expedited follow up. 
Yes, that's exactly right. I would have said that at the beginning, but then our discussion would have been like two <laughs> minutes. And, and I always enjoy talking to you. So, <laughs> But that's exactly right. If, if you risk stratify somebody to low risk, then they can go for outpatient evaluation. And I don't care if they've had a recent negative coronary CTA or cath or a cath that showed 20 or 30% occlusions, or they've had a recent negative stress test. Again, if they've had an intermediate or high-risk risk stratification, then all bets are off. But if you've risk stratified them to low risk, then they're heading out the door. And the key thing is you risk stratify them based on a validated accelerated diagnostic protocol, the heart pathway, or one of the highly sensitive troponin pathways. Those are all fantastic at being able to send these patients home. Now, they do finish off with two last questions, questions seven and eight, and these are a little bit different than the prior ones. They basically admit that for a group of patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain, anxiety and or depression might be a part of what's at play, why these patients are presenting recurrently with that chest pain. And they mention that we really should be involved in addressing those factors as well. Yeah, you know, in recent years, there's been increasing cardiology literature and also primary care literature associating underlying psychiatric illness and characteristics such as hostility or anger with coronary artery disease and even ACS. So they suggest that depression and anxiety screening in patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain should be done in the emergency department, or they're suggesting it be done. I don't want to say that they're mandating it by any means. There's so much that our triage folks do to start with. But it, it might be something that's worth doing in the patients that keep coming back over and over and over. And then they also endorse the concept of, of getting these patients referred for depression and anxiety management because these measures might decrease return visits and overall provide some benefit to the healthcare system. I think the most interesting thing in here, almost what they're identifying, what they're really saying pretty explicitly is that if you have a patient with low-risk chest pain who presents over and over again to your emergency department, that should be a trigger and a signal that there may be some anxiety and depression that needs to be addressed. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't evaluate them and work them up for their chest pain as we always do, but it means that at the end of that workup, we really should consider screening and referral for those problems. Yeah, I think that's a really, really intelligent approach to these patients. Summary. All right, I'm, I'm going to give the really quick and dirty summary of this article because I think we can kind of do it. If you take a patient with chest pain and you risk stratify them to low risk using one of the formal accelerated decision pathways, whether that be the heart pathway, whether it be EDAX, those patients really can go home with expedited referral, meaning referral within the next 30 days. They should be seen outpatient. If we're doing that with troponins, they do give us some guidelines. If you have the high sensitivity troponin, the patient has had pain for more than three hours, you can do a single troponin and then send them on their way. If the pain's less than three hours or you're not using those high sensitivity troponins, then you probably should be doing serial troponins. But once you define that low risk group, get them out the door, send them home, make sure they have proper follow-up in place. But most of these patients can safely, I shouldn't even say most, almost all of these patients can safely be discharged home with follow-up. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'll bring back something you said earlier, and that is everything applies that you just said, unless you get that spidey sense or there's some gestalt that makes you worry about something different. You know, the, these decision rules or instruments are never meant to overturn clinical gestalt. 
And so if there's just something on the side that really has you worried, even if they have a low score, then go ahead and do the right thing for the patient. But these decision instruments, these accelerated diagnostic protocols that are validated really provide us some sense of security and are within the standard of care and allow us to send these patients home more than ever before. It's time for Critical, Critical Care, care Mailbag. Mail look out, because he's going to bust some knowledge right in the head. Absolutely. Procedural Sedation, Part 2. Critical Care Mailbag, Procedural Sedation and Analgesia, Part 2, Diving into the Agents. All right, let's talk about some of those medications, because you mentioned some different medications, but we haven't really gotten deep into it. What I typically see is fentanyl and propofol. That is kind of the go-to for procedural sedation that I see most people reaching for. And they're given virtually simultaneously at the start of the procedure. There's a lot of different options, but uh, that giving them at the same time to me seems not to be the win. Okay. So the lion's share of your procedures probably should be done with propofol. And I know some hospitals have issues with propofol as in anesthesia has banned them. And understand the reason they ban them is not necessarily because of you in the emergency department. They just want to ban any non-anesthesiologist from using this or really make hurdles to using it because they don't want things like colonoscopies being done without an anesthesiologist present. There was actually this lecture about poachers and posers that was given at one of the ASA's conferences. Uh, it got recorded, unfortunately, for them. They didn't, I didn't think, want this idea out. But the idea was that uh, people are pretending to be anesthesiologists or poaching things that should be the domain of anesthesiologists. I think that in that comparison, we were the poachers because they thought we were competent, but we were stealing their procedures. I don't know. At the hospitals you work at, Swami, I know at mine, they don't want to come down. They have no desire to be involved Absolutely in not. Absolutely not. No desire to be involved unless we fail and the patient needs to go to the OR for right. the procedure. So therefore, you know, get propofol is really the answer. It should be the bedrock of almost every brief procedure you do. You know, and if you can't get propofol, then there's an agent called Brevitol that inexplicably, even though for all intents and purposes, it's the same as propofol. It's a very quick acting barbiturate that uh, goes off very quickly. And for whatever reason, that's not banned in almost every hospital. But if you have propofol, just use propofol. Don't use fentanyl. And this is a big sea change, I think, for many people. And it was a sea change for me. There used to be this idea of there would be spinal pain windup, as in like, even though they're sedated heavily with something like propofol, maybe even to the point of general anesthesia, that they'd still be experiencing pain in their dorsal root ganglion of the spinal cord. It would make post-op pain worse. They'd uprev all their receptors, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, you had to treat pain even if they were floridly unconscious. Jim Miner did the work because that was the idea out there. It was a contention that this was occurring. And Jim Miner proved it wasn't true. And after that, we could make our procedural sedations much safer. So the way you use analgesia is you get the patient pain-free before you do the procedure, which means not pain-free while you're yanking on the hip, just while they're lying there comfortably in bed, you give them enough analgesia to keep them comfortable at that point. So when they're lying still, they're relatively happy. Then no more analgesia during the procedure. It's just sedation. And so, you know, if you're using propofol, it means you're just using propofol. Now, what this does is eliminates the synergistic effects on apnea and hypotension of the combination of propofol and fentanyl, much more powerful in combination to make the patient stop breathing. And the propofol will disappear much more quickly than the fentanyl. So you know that if you analgese with fentanyl or dilaudid or morphine beforehand and they're breathing, that that's a good place that when the propofol wears off, they'll be back there. And all of a sudden, sedation becomes so much easier because now it's just a one agent titration and you don't have to really worry about anything than that. And that agent is incredibly short acting. So if you did go into general anesthesia, and once they stop the stimulation of the actual joint reduction them itself, 
yeah, there might be a brief period of time where they're no longer having the same stimulus that they had while the hippo is being manipulated. And therefore, they, they go apneic for a second because what is happening is it's a stimulus versus drug effect. And you're trying to match the drug effect to the worst of the stimulus. So the worst pain and discomfort of the hip reduction is what you're matching your propofol dose to. And then when they're done is the most dangerous time because all of a sudden the drug effect is a lot more than the stimulus effect. Well, you just give them some stimulus back for two minutes. You, you just you know give them a hard jaw thrust or you, you give them a sternal rub or something and they'll take a breath. And then you know two minutes later, the drug effect has been mitigated by metabolism and they're back to a matching of stimulus, which is nothing, and drug effect, which is wearing off almost entirely. So that's why propofol is so amazing for short procedures, is you're matching the duration of general anesthesia when they're apneic to the procedure itself. And if you miss it, you're missing it by a minute or so, not missing it by 40 minutes, like when we used to do midazolam in concert with fentanyl. I've got the patient fully analgesed, however I have done that, and now I'm ready to start my procedure. I'm ready to start giving the propofol. What doses are you using? Are you using a big bolus dose to get them down? Are you titrating it in slowly? How are you doing that? All right. The younger the patient, the more propofol you need. And so if I have a very old patient, I will actually use 100 minus their age as their propofol dose. So if you have an 80-year-old, I'm going to start with 20 milligram aliquots of propofol. Very small. You'll be remarkably amazed at sometimes like that 20 milligrams will put them out for like 15 minutes. It's insane. Young patients need a bunch. On a young patient, I'll usually start with one, one milligram per kilogram and then give 0.5 milligram per kilogram bolus subsequent to that. Older people, like I say, I'll use that 100 minus their age rule. And you know, in between, it might be maybe you start with 0.5 milligrams per kilogram and go from 0.5 milligrams per kilogram from that point on. You want to give some spacing between the doses. For me, it's about 60 seconds, but you don't want to wait too long. What I see quite commonly, in fact, unfortunately, like way too commonly is someone will give their wallop of propofol. The patient won't be fully down. They'll wait like three or four minutes and then they'll give the next dose of propofol and the patient still won't be down. And you're like 15 minutes in and then orthopedics gets pissed and they're like, I'm just starting. And the reason the patient never got adequately sedated is they had fully worn off of each dose between them, even though they needed more. So if you wait too long, it's bad. You know, if you stack it every 20 seconds, you can get them to have an extended period of general anesthesia. It might last, you know, three or four minutes. I don't generally mind that. So even though I say 60 seconds and that's what I tell you to do in real life, I'm probably doing it every 30 seconds or so because I don't mind sending them a little deep. I feel very confident about being able to maintain healthy patients during that period of time. But you know, if you have a fragile patient, if you have a patient that you don't want apneic at all, then uh, definitely space them out a little bit more. I mean, I think Jim Miner actually waits two minutes. I personally feel that's a little too long. 60 seconds feels like the right space for me. I love having a stopwatch going during the procedure because it's very hard to gauge time when you're in the middle of one of these sedations. Damn straight. All right, let's talk about some of the other medications because we mainly have focused on propofol. Let's get rid of midazolam. I think we can both agree that that is just not a very good agent when we're doing a full procedural sedation. Not just the two milligrams for the anxiolysis before the lumbar puncture, but as your sedative agent is just not a great agent to use. But we do have ketamine. We love ketamine, Scott. And I like using Atomidate, but it's going to be very specific based on the procedure. So where are you reaching for alternate drugs from propofol? Ketamine for me is for long procedures that don't require muscle relaxation. So, you know, at my older places, it didn't happen recently. This was where like I was in a city trauma hospital and uh, they didn't want to operate on any of the joint stuff for weeks. 
So they would try to have the perfect reduction on a trimal. This took them 90 minutes under a C-arm many, many times. They'd all fall out as soon as they got sent home anyway, but they convinced themselves they wouldn't have to schedule the operation. It was a joke. So we'd have these 90-minute sedations. The only safe way to do that if you're not going to intubate them is with ketamine. And since for like a trimal, there's not a lot of strong muscles that will fight them, it was fine. I'd give them ketamine. I knew they were going to be fine. They'd keep breathing. I'd still have to be there at the bedside the whole time, but I didn't have to worry about them getting apneic. But in most ED procedures, ketamine is not the one to reach for because it doesn't give the muscle relaxation. Now, where is it great? It's great for chest tubes or uh, huge lax or abscesses and stuff like that that doesn't require muscle relaxation. And you just have to be willing to understand that I could have for a hip reduction using the right dosing of propofol, I could have them done, like done, 10 minutes. They're out of my trauma room in 10 minutes. They're fully awake. They get their post-op Aldredi assessments, whatever the nurses are using, and they literally are perfect at the 10-minute mark and gone. And usually the way it was in my EDICU is they would get transferred in for the sedation and then I transfer them back out, which means I could turn these patients around in like 15 minutes. I do my pre-op eval, I'd get them sedated, done, and I'd send them back out to their unit. And so you can get that. You can't do that with ketamine. The ketamine, they're going to be with you for 45 minutes. So you have to be willing to have that trade-off. What about Atomidate? It's good. It is not as deep a muscle relaxation as propofol at sedation doses, though it's very reasonable. The pain in the butt is the myoclonic jerking, right? They get this myoclonus, and it looks like seizures. The nurses freak out. Every time I do Atomidate, I tell the nurses up front, there's a 30% chance of this happening, so don't be scared. They're not seizing. You don't have to rush and get the Ativan. It's a known thing, and it's not affecting their brain. It's fine. I use it for cardioversion because I think it's a very hemodynamically stable agent in these patients that are a little tenuous, but that, I think that's all I use it for. How about you, Swami? That's kind of where I'm going, too. I like Atomidate for those very, very, very short procedures where I want something that's going to get them down fast, and then they're going to be awake pretty quickly afterwards. Cardioversion is definitely the classic one. I've used it a couple of times for abscesses. Fortunately, in my last shop, we had nitrous. I know we're not talking about nitrous here because most of our listeners still don't have that. And we did a long session on that in the past. Nitrous is great for a lot of these short procedures. And it basically replaced the Tomidate for a number of things I was using it for before. I like that. The last one's Ketofol, which is kind of a combo agent, but let's pretend it, it fits in the area of one agent. I don't, I used to mix it in one syringe. I don't do that anymore. For me, when I use Ketofol, it's like a patient, I really don't want to stop breathing. So I know if I put a backbone of ketamine in there, I'll get an amazing amount of analgesia and I'll get uh, dissociation, which means my propofol dosing goes way down, but I keep them in separate syringes. And what I'll usually wind up doing is giving a reasonable amount of ketamine, something like 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, you could even give less. If you wanted to just use it as an analgesic backbone, you can. Because again, now it's not going to have the synergistic apnea effects like fentanyl would. So you could just give 20 or 30 if you wanted to. But I'll usually give like 40, 50. And then I'll just use my propofol for sedation up beyond that point, knowing that I'll be using much lower doses of propofol and therefore the chances of apnea are markedly less. Scott, I want to cover one more piece before we close up. Because even when you do everything perfectly right, you take everything that we just talked about into account, sometimes the patient does become apneic. Sometimes they do get a little bit too deep for you or they don't reverse as fast as you'd like them to. We have the end tidal CO2 on. When we look at the line, the end tidal CO2 is pretty flat. Their oxygenation is good because we've got that non-rebreather. Walk me through what you're doing in that situation. So you've given them pre-medication with your fentanyl or your hydromorphone. You've used propofol for your sedation. And now the patient is apneic. 
and the end title CO2 is flat. Yeah. What are you doing to troubleshoot there? I love it. I love it. And look, be aware. If the patient comes to you and they're comfortable, don't give the opioids. It's still going to have a synergistic effect, just not as much as when you're actually giving it during the sedation itself. So if they're cool, don't give them any opioids. The opioids will definitely be a synergistic problem for you. So if you don't need them, don't give them. Now, I'm always going to have a period of apnea. Always. Because it just is the, the nature of the game if you're doing this correctly. If you have a patient who is fully at the plane they need to be, there will be a period of apnea. Sometimes it's 20 seconds, sometimes it's a minute, sometimes it's two minutes. If it's beyond that, you probably overdosed your propofol. But you know, two minutes is a very reasonable amount of time of apnea. Here's the thing to understand. If you pre-oxygenated them and they've been on continuous high flow non-rebreather, you know, which is flush rate non-rebreather, then you have a long amount of time. Even in like a bad case scenario, like you're not going to be doing this in a crashing patient. We, that's an entire different session we could do. Swami is emergent sedation in a crashing patient, but these are patients who are relatively healthy, but they might have some things that predispose them to rapid desaturation, like they're more obese or, you know, they have, you know, pre-existing lung disease, et cetera. You still have at least two minutes in any patient you've pre-oxygenated and put on high flow O2. So you don't have to freak out. And that's the first thing is stay calm. The next thing to ask yourself is, is this just an airway positioning problem? And oftentimes, you know, they, they're trying to breathe, but they, they've kind of scrunched their face down and they don't have an open airway. So just, you know, a, a chin lift is usually enough. You know, you pull back on their chin, you do that, that. In essence, that's a jaw thrust as well. And if they start breathing, then great. If they don't, the thing to understand is they really just need two breaths a minute. And this is another paradigm I want you to get across. They don't need to be taking 12 breaths a minute. They need two breaths a minute to fully re-oxygenate and then stay good for the subsequent time they have apnea. They just need two breaths a minute, two nice real breaths a minute. You know, you don't have to stop at two if you're concerned by that or you think the breaths are small, maybe you go for four, but two is really what you need if it's a real breath, which means you just need to stimulate the patient every 30 seconds or so until they take a breath. And what that usually means for me, because it's the least, you know, obtrusive for people in the room watching and it doesn't leave any marks, is you put your fingers behind the mandible of the jaw, uh, right underneath the earlobes. And you, what you do is you push forward at the jaw at the same time you're pushing inwards. It's intensely stimulating and it opens their airway at the same time. And the patient will take a breath. If they were taking a breath, you know, during the reduction, then they'll take a breath now because this is intensely stimulating. They take a breath, you leave them alone for another 20 or 30 seconds. If they're still apneic, you do it again. And that's it. If you're having them breathe two times a minute and you, you have to see the big end tidal CO2 spike, it'll be a big spike then you can leave them alone and let them stay because those two breaths a minute are enough to completely keep them oxygenated as long as they're on high flow, flush rate, non-rebreather. So that's what I do for apnea. And I, I could go for 10 minutes if I had to during that. But if you use the proper dosing of propofol, it won't be 10 minutes. It'll be 30 seconds, two minutes at the most. And then they'll start waking up. Now, old people, if you forgot my rule and gave them the normal, even half dose of propofol, if you gave them 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, in many cases, it will be like eight minutes. And then you just have to suck it up and live through it. Summary. I think the most important thing in that answer is the fact that the patient is going to have some period of apnea. And we talked about that up front because we need to cross over into general anesthesia in order to complete the procedure that we are aiming to do. It is not just deep sedation. It is really crossing over into general anesthesia. And so we should be anticipating that that's where we're going to get to but that that's okay because our agents are going to wear off quickly and we can stimulate them to take that breath that we need them to. So they're not apneic longer than we need to, but this does take careful planning. So having that end tidal CO2 in place, giving them flush rate oxygen through a non-rebreather to make sure that they are 
maximally oxygenated before the procedure, they're washing out that nitrogen, and that they maintain good oxygenation throughout the procedure so that even when they have that apnea, the oxygen level never falls. And then we are tailoring a bit with our medications. Most of the time, though, we are going to be reaching for propofol because it can get us to slide into that deep anesthesia slash general anesthesia region for the period that we need it to and then come out very quickly. But there is a role for things like ketamine, especially if you have a longer procedure where muscle relaxation is an important, automate specifically for cardioversion. And if you have nitrous, there are so many good places to use nitrous, but propofol is going to be our go-to. And it's a matter of understanding the dosing in the older patient versus the younger patient, the stacking of those doses so that the first dose doesn't wear off before you're giving that next dose and then always being prepared for the situations that you could get into by having your airway equipment there, having the LMA, and knowing what you're going to do if the patient's apneic longer than you want them to be, especially since we don't really have a reversal agent for propofol, except for time, which works really well. Excellent, Scott. Thanks for going through all of this on PSA. I think this gives us really the tools to bring our PSA to the next level so that we are providing the best sedation for the patient in front of us and also, of course, the safest sedation for that patient. Love it, Swami. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Time for the ultra ultra. I'll do the first one. Abstract one. It was abstract one, and it was a video assisted laryngoscopy for pediatric tracheal intubation in the emergency department a multi-center study. Okay, so this was a data set, two big data sets, 1,400 kids asking the same old question, should we be doing video laryngoscope or should we not? And uh, there's actually quite a lot of statistics in here. I really do suggest you go back and listen to Sanjay's discussion of the whole thing. But the summary was in this data set after torturing the data because this was an observational study that VIA was a bit better than direct laryngoscopy. But as Mike and Sanjay both point out, at this point, you need to know both. You really do. Video laryngoscope is a thing. It's very helpful, but you also need to be able to do it old school. But the preponderance, I would say, is this true? I think it's true. The preponderance of the papers right now would be saying that for first-pass success, video laryngoscope is a bit better. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing it both ways. I think we still need to be able to do this both ways. Do it both ways. Both ways you must learn it. Abstract 2. Okay, friends, let's start off with a really important one about stroke. Okay, continue, you must. Trial of endovascular treatment of acute basilar artery occlusion. This is the attention trial. And I'll tell you, it's been getting some attention because this is really an important thing to talk about. So endovascular therapy, we've been using for a while in anterior circulation strokes. There have been a lot of evidence to support this practice. What is lacking, however, is evidence for posterior circulation strokes using the same endovascular therapy technique. And so this was a large randomized controlled trial in China. This was in the New England Journal. And basically, it showed that endovascular therapy worked really well for patients with posterior circulation strokes. Now, notable is that this is, again, a Chinese study. The criteria were very strict for inclusion and exclusion criteria. These were very, very sick stroke patients with vertebral basilar occlusion seen on imaging, baseline NIHSS scales of 24, so really sick strokes. But both in modified Rankin score at 90 days and many other categories, 
the group in the endovascular therapy arm just did better. So this is really hopeful for these patients with devastating strokes. And just to know, Mike points out that, again, there is some issues with potential uh, generalizability as we try to do this therapy in other centers. But good news on the horizon for endovascular therapy in posterior circulation stroke. Abstract four. All right, abstract four. I have to do, I got to do it. I must do it because it's about AFib and diltiazem versus a beta blocker. And so this study, which unfortunately methodologically was retrospective and there's you know, patients that crossed over and they didn't tell us about that, suggests that uh, IV diltiazem and metoprolol in patients with AFib and with a history of heart failure, not necessarily in florid pulmonary edema right now, work about the same. And there was no significant difference between the two. There might actually have been a little bit more uh, oxygen requirement in the DILT group, but uh, probably not. So this is just another paper that says, although cardiologists love metoprolol and ER docs love diltiazem in AFib, there's probably not that much difference between the two. But again, if I dare say it, the preponderance of the evidence suggests that diltiazem is better, faster, and less filling. Okay? But this is a little limited uh, because of that crossover thing. A lot of patients crossed over and they didn't really describe who did what. And that would be really useful information. Abstract nine. Okay, abstract number nine was on the utility of serum lactate on the differential diagnosis of seizure-like activity. Now, this happens all the time, right? You have a patient that comes in, they've had a transient loss of consciousness, but no one saw it. What happened? Was it a seizure? Was it syncope? Was it something else? And it would be so nice if we could just have one test that could tell us what happened. Now, I remember distinctly as a resident, one of our neurology residents said, always get a lactate in these cases because if it's elevated, it was a tonic-clonic seizure. And I've often wondered, well, is that really true? And I was hoping that this uh, systematic review and meta-analysis would let us know the answer. And they conclude, yes, after looking at eight studies in the ED of patients with seizure-like activity, that yes, lactate is higher in patients with tonic-clonic seizure activity and quite a bit higher. They say on the average of five millimoles per liter higher lactates in those patients with tonic-clonic seizures. But as Sanjay points out, there are some issues with this methodology. And so we can't really hang our hats on that. But I love how he concludes that if you think that it's likely that someone had a generalized tonic-clonic seizure and their lactate is elevated, you are probably right. But it also could be something else. So don't hang your hat on it, but I'll probably still get the lactates. Abstract 8. You got a little kid. They've got a fever. You know that most of the time that fever is going to be viral. But sometimes it's going to be bacterial. So which of the 700 different uh, scoring systems and things do you use? So this was a validation and comparison of the PECAN rule, the step-by-step approach, and the lab score for predicting serious and invasive bacterial infections. It was out of Singapore. It was published in the Annals of the Academy of Medicine of Singapore. And in the end, after they looked at these kids... They basically said that the step-by-step was the most sensitive. Its specificity wasn't great, but it was the most sensitive. And as Sanjay points out, there's probably not a big difference between these scoring systems. You should sort of pick one, get real comfortable with it, know how it works, and be very careful about mixing and matching You know, a little bit of this rule and a little bit of that rule, because that stuff has not been validated. So in this study, and in some other studies, step-by-step still seems like it's at least as good as the other ones, and it seems to be the one that a lot of people are using right now. So um, learn one. And again, I say, there is no validation to doing a bit of step-by-step and then a bit of a pecan and then a bit of lab scoring. Choose one that's been validated. OK, 
okay and just follow that bad boy and know its characteristics. Abstract 11. Abstract number 11. Diagnostic accuracy of a bacterial and viral biomarker point of care test in the outpatient setting. So if you're like many of us right now, you are in the throes of respiratory season where we see a ton of viral upper respiratory tract infections and a few of these are bacterial. But many of us are feeling pressured to provide antibiotics and it actually contributes to a lot of antibiotic overuse and the estimate is about half of the prescriptions that we're giving for upper respiratory infections are unnecessary. So wouldn't it be nice if there was a test that just told us this is a bacterial infection, this is a viral infection, and that is what these authors sought out to do. They tested this immunoassay called FebriDX, and essentially it is a finger stick test that results in 10 minutes. You put the blood on a little well, and if the viral side lights up, this is looking for myxovirus resistance protein A, then it is likely a virus. And if you have the bacterial side light up, that's a CRP test, then it's likely a bacterial infection. Now, if both of them light up or none of them light up, then it's indeterminate. And they took this test and they tested it in ED settings, urgent cares, and primary care clinics and found that this test worked. It worked really well with their pre-specified criteria. So this is good news. Maybe in the future, once this test or other tests like it are evaluated in a different setting with different authors. Sanjay points out that this could really be a helpful test to combat the over-prescribing of antibiotics in acute respiratory illnesses. So stay tuned. Abstract 14. Abstract number 14 is about oxycodone with paroxetine, orquetiapine, and respiratory depression. The title's actually really long, so I'm going to just cut to the chase on this one. It was in JAMA, and essentially, here's the gist. We know that oxycodone and other opioids cause respiratory depression by messing up your own physiologic response to hypercarbia. We also know that when you combine opioids with benzodiazepines, they potentiate this effect. So the CDC and the FDA have released warnings to avoid combining benzodiazepines and opioids. So this was a human laboratory experiment to see if other meds like paroxetine, which is Paxil, or quetiapine, which is Seroquel, also potentiate that respiratory depression when combined with oxycodone. Now, be forewarned, this was a volunteer human laboratory experiment, just like when you were in college and you saw a flyer that said, hey, sign up for this and we'll pay you money. So Mike mentions that many of these participants really did not like the study. They were hooked up to these machines that checked their minute ventilation, etc. But the bottom line is, is that one of these meds did potentiate the respiratory depression when combined with oxycodone, and it was paroxetine or Paxil. So be very wary if you have someone on paroxetine and you're thinking of prescribing oxycodone, because it will most likely depress their respiratory state. Abstract 18. I've got to say that Abstract 18 really caught my eye, and it was titled The Impact of Virtual Care in the Emergency Department Observation Unit, and it was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And they took the time after COVID got a little better, you know, like six months after the disaster, and they, uh, in a couple of hospitals, changed the way they did their rounding. They would have an APP, usually round with an attending physician, you know, once or twice a day, and like, let's come up with a plan here. But during this time, there was a virtual attending some of the time. Now, this is pretty tortured data, and they didn't look at bounce backs, but there wasn't a huge difference between the in-person attending 
and the virtual attending. And so this caught my eye because I'm really interested in this because I think um, the world, it is a changing. And do we really need in an observation unit to have a physician on site to do the rounding? Because in theory, these patients are less sick. They've already got a plan and it's mostly like, is the plan working? Do we need to change the plan? So you might not necessarily need to be there. Somebody needs to be there. But can you do this with physician oversight that is virtual? So this doesn't say that you can, that it's a slam dunk. But we're going to see much more of this. We're going to see much more about virtual care in general. I think it's really important that we do good studies to find out where and when that is appropriate. It's probably much more often than we have been doing. And obviously, there'll be reimbursement issues. But this is a very interesting study. At least it showed that not everybody dropped dead when the attending physician wasn't there in person. And remember, this was an observation unit. This wasn't putting in high lines and criking people in the ER. Abstract 19. Abstract number 19 is about the risks of radiation exposure to ED personnel from portable radiographs. Have you ever wondered how much radiation exposure you're getting when you're working in a recess bay? Well, I've actually wondered this my whole life, having been a resident running around in the recess bay when x-rays are being done for traumas and whatnot. And I did lead and stood six feet behind and all of the things that you're supposed to do. And that's exactly what these authors looked into. They had ED nurses, attendings, and residents wear dosimeters for three months while at work. And the good news is, is that none of these providers had any recognizable radiation exposure. So essentially zero on the dosimeter. Note that the dosimeter's lower level of recognition is 0.1 millisieverts, but that means that all of the providers had less than 0.1 millisieverts of exposure over three months. So that's really good news. The other cool thing about the study is they actually put dosimeters in the room, so on the wall or somewhere, and they recorded the scatter. And over three months, the room was actually also pretty protected. The room only recorded 0.18 millisieverts. So the bottom line is, is that if you adhere to your normal safety protocols while working in the recess bay, even though x-rays are being done, you are safe. Abstract 20. And lastly for me, let me do abstract 20 because it caught my because it was another telehealth one. Association between in-person versus telehealth follow-up and rates of repeated hospital visits among patients seen in the emergency department. And the idea here was some patients who got seen during the pandemic were seen in real life by a doctor and some were seen via telehealth after they'd visited the emergency department. And they say in this paper, the conclusion is that there was a little bit more bouncing back and a little more problems if you didn't see the patient in person. I would like to believe that. I'd like to believe that actually seeing a patient and touching them and examining them is better than doing it over the phone, as it were, or the zoomy zoom. But because of the fact that this was not sort of randomized and there's a lot of confounders here, we don't know. Again, it suggests that, that there's at least a subset of these patients that do not need to be seen in person and can be seen via telehealth. We now need to tease out who those people are, because I can tell you as a patient, I don't want to come back to the emergency department and get rechecked if I don't need to. But when is it safe to do that versus we really do need to touch and sniff and smell you in person? This study doesn't tell us that. It's upsetting. Let me just say, this is the ultra ultra summary. You need to listen to the whole show. You need to listen to it every month. You need to listen to it multiple times. If you don't, if you don't, you will never become a literature legend. People will not stop you in the street. We really do need to touch and sniff and smell you in person. Said it. They will not say that person is, you know, cut above, is a bit more handsome, a bit taller, a bit more attractive than the person that doesn't do that. 
you've just got to listen to the whole show. And, and you really do need to touch and sniff and smell you multiple times so that you can be a literature, literature, literature. legend. Reading papers not make one literature legend. Listening to the ultra summary makes one legend. It's upsetting. Okay, welcome to this month's mailbag. We are coming to you from the home office in Chum's Corner, Michigan. Beautiful Chum's Corner. Everybody loves to visit Chum's Corner. In Chum's Corner, Michigan, the friendship is free. But if you want bait for fish in the lake, you gotta pay a fee. I mean, right? Chum, he's got his corner. It's fantastic. There's lots of sharks around, apparently. That's what I think of when I when I hear Chum. I think right. of that was the thing. <laughs> Were you thinking Chum as in your pal or Chum as in the stuff you throw to a track sharks i definitely went to the shark gen that's what i immediately thought is are there really that many sharks I in know. michigan i didn't think they were that common but apparently they are they're around every corner if anyone's been to chum's corner i want to hear about the shark population of yes. chum's corner letter one jan this is neither here nor there we actually do have a mailbag question our july 2022 segment almost a year ago on spinal epidural abscess with Britt long and skylar lenzer led to a lot of different listener questions that all kind of focused on one area And we had a listener that kind of summed all of this up really well. They had two patients that they had taken care of where the patient clearly had signs and symptoms concerning for an SEA, for that spinal epidural abscess, but the MRI didn't show a spinal epidural abscess. And so the listener asked, now what? The MRI looks good, but the patient's symptoms are really concerning. What do I do? So we threw it back over to Britt and said, Britt, what do we do? And Britt's got an answer. The first is what is a differential diagnosis where you have a concerning presentation but a reassuring MRI? If you have this type of scenario, you need to ask yourself three different questions. One, first, how concerned are you for a spinal epidural abscess or some form of cord compression or cauda equina syndrome? This all comes back to your clinical assessment. The findings that raise a red flag for me are bilateral sciatica, urinary or bowel retention, altered perineal sensation, weakness, and then absent patellar and ankle reflexes. Clinically, if the patient has these findings, that's cord compression or cauda equina syndrome. They need the spinal specialist. Two. The second question I ask myself is who read the MRI? And if you're looking for a spinal epidural abscess, did you get an MRI of the whole spine? If the radiologist is not comfortable with MRIs, then just speak with your spinal specialist or the neurosurgeon and have them take a look. If you're concerned up front based on your bedside assessment, speak with them before you get imaging. The second part of this question deals with the MRI of the whole spine. We need an MRI of the whole spine here because around 15% of spinal epidural abscess cases are going to have skip lesions, and we don't want to miss these other lesions. Three, the final consideration focuses on our differential. Basically, is there some condition that I just haven't thought about yet? There is a differential for patients who present with back pain and those neurologic issues. The first major issue is some problem with the aorta or its branches. That could be an aortic occlusion, a dissection, proximal limb ischemia, and the other major consideration 
is some neurologic issue that affects the spinal cord or the peripheral nerves. Those would be conditions like Guillain-Barre syndrome, multiple sclerosis, or myelitis. There are some inflammatory conditions that could cause this presentation like sarcoidosis, but that's pretty rare. There is an interesting condition called Ellsberg syndrome. This is a syndrome where there's acute or subacute bilateral lumbosacral radiculitis, usually with myelitis of the lower spinal cord. It's probably due to reactivation of primary herpes simplex infection, and it's going to look just like Cauda equina syndrome. The other part of the differential that we haven't talked about yet is that patient who comes in with flu-like symptoms, they have fevers and myalgias. You need to think about spinal epidural abscess, discitis, endocarditis, myocarditis, toxic shock syndrome, meningitis, a psoas muscle abscess, even carbon monoxide toxicity. Your history and exam are going to help you the most here in determining your next steps. There is one final condition that I have to at least mention, and that's a functional disorder. Numerous studies have found that patients who present with signs and symptoms of cauda equina syndrome, they have legitimate neurologic deficits, even urinary retention, are going to have MRIs that are negative. These patients may have a comorbid functional or psychiatric disorder, but this is not something that we're going to diagnose in the ED. If you have a patient with these signs and symptoms, speak with your spinal specialist, even if you have a negative MRI. Think through your differential, but if they have these deficits, they can't go home. The second listener question was, can you review the proper way to assess rectal tone? Really quick anatomy review here. The spinal cord ends with the conus medullaris at around the L1 or L2 vertebral level. The nerve roots that continue from this point are the L2 ascending and descending segments all the way to the coccygeal segments. That's what we call the cauda equina. The digital rectal exam primarily tests the S2 to S4 function. When you're performing the rectal exam, the first part is just positioning. Try to get them as comfortable as you can while ensuring that you have access to what you need to. Use a lot of lube and insert one finger. You should immediately feel a resting tone with some pressure on your finger. Then have the patient try to resist defecation, kind of like stopping urination midstream. You should feel anterior contraction of the puborectalis muscle and the external anal sphincter. Then have the patient relax, but keep your finger in the rectum. Ask them to bear down or push your finger out. You're going to feel pressure if the patient's S2 to S4 function is intact. Any abnormality here where there's decreased tone or contraction could be a problem with the sacral nerve roots. The problem with all of this is that when we look at the literature, the rectal exam just isn't reliable. Multiple studies suggest sensitivity is well less than 50%, and the inter-rater reliability is basically a flip of the coin. I'm not going to cover all the studies in detail here, but there is one I'm going to touch on. That's a 2022 meta-analysis published in the journal Musculoskeletal Science and Practice. This meta-analysis included six studies in 741 patients, all with cauda equina syndrome. Authors found that the digital rectal exam with anal tone had a sensitivity ranging anywhere between 23 to 
anal squeeze had a sensitivity of 29%, and there was a sensitivity of 38% for anal reflexes. There are some limitations with this meta-analysis. Five of the studies were retrospective. There is some risk of bias, but these findings are potentially game-changing. The authors ultimately recommend not using the digital rectal exam in any clinical setting. I agree with most of their conclusions, but the rectal exam may still have a place if you feel decreased tone. The key is to not use the digital rectal exam to rule out a spinal cord problem. There are some other exam maneuvers you can try like the anal wink reflex and the bulbocavernosis reflex. Both of these are pretty invasive and I'm not routinely performing them in the ED. If I am concerned about cord compression or cauda equina syndrome, I'm going to perform a focused history and exam. And this listener did everything right. First, I ask about changes in urination, that could be retention and incontinence, changes in defecation, like constipation or incontinence, and then also changes in sexual function. Second, I ask about saddle or anal sensory changes, essentially changes in sensation when the patient wipes with toilet paper or during urination. On exam, I look for focal weakness or sensory changes, including the saddle area. When it comes to cauda equina syndrome, bilateral sciatica and diminished or absent Achilles and patellar reflexes are also concerning. Well, Britt always has knowledge to give to all of us, and this was a really good one. I thought it was a great question, and I really appreciated that summary. All right, don't forget to keep those letters coming. In Chubb's Corner, Michigan, the friendship is free. But if you want bait for fishing in the lake, you gotta pay a fee. In Chubb's Corner, Michigan, a pal don't cost a cent. But if you need a shack for fishing in, you gotta pay for rent. That's right. Seriously, people, this is Chum's Corner, as in friend, not fish. A friendly place for friendly people. We do not and have never given out free bait, tackle, or fishing supplies. And there are no sharks. Not sure where that rumor got started. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. So stop on by if you want to say hi. The people will warm your soul. And if you want to pull fish in a hole, you gotta pay a toll. You gotta pay a toll. You gotta pay a toll. Pay us money and we'll let you fish here for free, you goddamn son of a bitch. Uh, Barry, don't forget that's a friendly song uh, about friendly people. Uh, Let's try again. Friendship's a burden. Leave me alone. Uh, should I go? Mega, 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 monster. Like that? <laughs> it's mega summary time, everybody. And this month, we've got a lot of great pearls for you. Mega pearls. And we're going to start off with you, Swami. Dr. Amy Margolini. Yeah, we had a great segment with Evie Marcolini talking about spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage and a guideline that was published in Stroke. And, you know, it's not in our literature, Jan, but we need to know about it because it's in Stroke. That's a big journal. It really helps to guide our management. So they took tons of information, compressed it into this guideline, and there were a couple of big points that we hit on. Number one was about blood pressure management. This guideline gives a level 2A recommendation stating, in patients with spontaneous ICH requiring acute BP lowering, careful titration to ensure continuous, smooth, and sustained control of blood pressure is what we should be shooting for. And they say the goal, somewhere around 140 millimeters of mercury. So if the patient comes in at 220, shoot for 140. But they also say 
don't overcorrect them. If you go below 130, that might actually harm the patient. So there's a bit of a sweet spot we want to be aiming for somewhere in that 130 to 150 range. They do talk about agents saying that clavidipine and nicardipine are probably the best, but Jan, we know a lot of our neighbors to the north and neighbors everywhere else don't have either of those drugs available. So labetalol is their next recommendation. Avoid nitroprusside. From there, they get into things like reversing anticoagulation, which um, you should reverse the anticoagulation. That's kind of what these guidelines say. Level one, reverse the anticoagulation, even if you don't know when the patient last took it. Just go ahead and do a full reversal if they've got a significant intracranial hemorrhage. And from there, they go into things like, should we do anti-epileptic drugs? The patient doesn't have evidence of a seizure, don't really need to give AEDs. But one of the caveats to that is if the patient's going to the operating room, you probably should load with an anti-seizure medication. And then they talk a little bit about advanced imaging. Who needs that advanced imaging? And one of the biggest take-homes here for me, Jan, is not everybody needs advanced imaging. And there actually are certain criteria that say, if you see these things on your non-con head CT, go ahead and get a CT angio. That will help the neurosurgeons. But if you don't see those things, you probably don't need them. And then they talk about that repeat non-con head CT. If there's any deterioration, obviously get one. Otherwise, sometime in the next 24 hours is reasonable, but some people say, oh, I want it at the six-hour mark. Your consultants are probably going to guide you here. There's not great evidence to tell us that. But overall, I think this is a nice guideline wrapping up all that care in one place. Yeah, I mean, as the partner of somebody who had a hemorrhagic stroke and had one of these, I saw it in real life, and that blood pressure control is really important and tough, and it's really Goldilocks phenomenon, like you said. Often an A-line is needed to kind of make sure that you're titrating it to that particular point. But, you know, these can be very devastating and a big deal. And you can feel pretty helpless because there's not much else you can do besides blood pressure control and wait, you know, until edema and time passes and, and see what happens. So there's an emotional component to these that I definitely feel just like with every stroke. And so, you know, this is really good advice. Rural medicine talks. Our next segment, Jan, was the rural medicine piece. And um, I don't know, there were kind of two patients in here, yes. but we really focus on one of those two patients. Yeah, this was is a story of two patients, really. And, and this is Ben Matty telling the story with Vanessa Carty. And, you know, the setting here, of course, is a rural hospital. It's a critical access hospital, the kind where, you know, the doc does 24-hour shifts and they've got a hospitalist in-house, but pretty much transfer everybody else out, anyone who's really sick. And patient one comes in who really is looking kind of like a stroke, maybe on insulin, but not taking for several days, really high blood pressure you know, glucose is critical high, not moving one side, sounds like it's been at least 24 hours, really confused, you know, but then you get a call and EMS is going to bring in an even sicker patient, a lady who fell off a ladder, who's got an obvious skull fracture and was pulseless when they arrived. They've got ROSC and they're going to be there in less than five minutes. So you're in a place with two nurses, kind of what do you do next? And so they walk through, you know, the things that are so important in those moments, the team huddle, make a plan, talk about what meds you might be needing in this next you know, critical case. The pharmacist in this case was able to get those things ready, get your ultrasound machine fired up if you have one. In this case, Ben had a handheld ultrasound because he's a really all-prepared rural ER doctor. That's awesome. And then talk through what you think your airways plan is going to be with your RT. He talks about king tubes being great for temporizing if you have them. You know, and then all of a sudden, of course, as you're in the middle of that discussion, the patient rolls in and it's a really sick patient that this type of rural hospital doesn't see all that often every once in a while. And this is a patient who had fixed and dilated pupils, was bradycardic. I mean, so, so sick. CPR was started and they start with all the kitchen sink, you know, the TXA, the Keppra, the norepinephrine, the ACLS meds may be needed soon, you know, getting blood, all those things. Even the hospitalist came down and was enlisted to help in this case. 
So they walk through all of the management pearls here. And then it turns out they go out to talk to the family who's just arrived. And this patient was actually in treatment for metastatic cancer. And they express that she really wouldn't want more resuscitation if she loses pulses again. So go back in the room, summarize with the team where we are, what the family expressed in terms of the patient's wishes. And then what happens is she ends up braiding down and they let her go. And they do, you know, sort of a debrief and a moment of silence. And now they have to sort of reset, circle back to patient one and walk through that case. So it was an interesting moment of just thinking through how you manage these cases with limited resources and how important it is to manage the staff and manage the emotional component that can be involved in these cases. These are so hard because when we have one of these critical cases, I kind of know I can focus here. I can take care of this critical patient because I've got backup. There's like two or three other docs around. They can come and take up whatever else comes in in the meantime. So I can focus on that patient in front of me. And when I walk out, everything will probably be okay. But when you're the single doc, that doesn't really happen. And you're always thinking about what else is going on that might need my attention as well. Kudos to the hospitals for coming down and helping out. That is huge. Just to have another set of hands, another set of skilled hands. And hospitals in these small hospitals, Jan, they're a different breed too. They know what they're doing. They know how to take care of this stuff. So that's a great call to put out and say, who else here could help me out? So knowing your resources, knowing your place, kudos to Ben. Really great cases to kind of work through and think about how I would work if I had that set of limited resources to call on. Absolutely. Our next segment was the critical care mailbag. And Jan, we talked about procedural sedation and analgesia. There was so much to talk about here. We actually split this up into two segments. And I feel like Weingart has been chomping at the bit to get into this topic. And we really haven't covered procedural sedation and analgesia in a while. You kind of think it's run of the mill. We do it all the time. Barely a shift goes by where I don't do a PSA, but that doesn't mean that we can't do it better. And so Scott starts off by talking about levels of sedation the minimal sedation where maybe you give someone a little anxiolytic, that's not really PSA, the moderate sedation. And then what we do most of the time, Jan, whether we admit to it or not, most of what we do is deep sedation. And let's be honest, a little bit of general anesthesia. We are dipping into that realm of general anesthesia as we're trying to actually do the procedure at hand. And I think it's important for us to admit in our minds that that's what we're doing. And so if we're doing that, we want to prepare ourselves adequately to take care of the patient while they're in that general anesthesia realm. The key point being, we want the briefest duration of general anesthesia required to accomplish the task and then bring the patient right up again as quickly as we can so we don't get into that area where we need to actually take over the airway. And then Scott goes through his pre-PSA preparation, the airway equipment being at the bedside, the fact that even though not everyone has entitled CO2, everybody should have entitled CO2. Everyone should have entitled CO2 for their PSA. It makes it exquisitely more safe. And it also means that we can give supplemental oxygen, which if we're doing deep sedation, we should be giving supplemental oxygen as well. But you really want to do that with entitled CO2 so you can really detect that apnea before it becomes hypoxia and needs an intervention to fix. Then we go through all of the different sedative agents, the different options, and the bottom line, which I think we all know, but we just need to remind ourselves of, is that we want to tailor our sedative to both the patient and the procedure. So we can't just say, oh, I always like to use propofol, or I always use ketamine. It really is about the patient in front of you and the procedure you're doing. There are lots of great options. We just have to know all those options, be comfortable with them, and then match them to the patient. And then we go through what happens when you actually do maybe over-sedate the patient, you get a little bit of prolonged apnea, how you can fix that without panicking too much. And I think if we go through all of this before we do a PSA, we won't panic. When we see a little bit of apnea, we'll be like, okay, no problem. I know what to do. 
pull the jaw forward, give a little bit of supplemental O2, stop my agents. It'll probably go away pretty quickly. It's easy to become complacent with procedural sedation because most of the time it goes just fine. And if you have enough that goes well, you start to get a little jaded and you just have to think every time I remind myself, think about this one as the one that's going to go wrong from the very beginning. Make sure the suction works. Make sure you've talked about a plan B. Make sure you all those things because it's just easy to kind of gloss over things. So really think about this is the one that's going to go bad. This is the one. What if it goes bad? The other thing I think about before I walk into a procedural sedation is what other meds the patients had before the procedural sedation. Because in my experience, some of the ones that go bad are the ones where they've gotten a lot of opiates already because they're in a a lot of pain and we're going to be reducing whatever painful fracture, et cetera, they have. Because often there's those additive effects that you just haven't really thought of. So have your naloxone ready. Think about what else is on board because that may be contributing to the apnea that you may see when you actually get into the procedure. Absolutely. Smackdown. Our next segment was another of our peed smackdowns, which Jan, I've become to love these peed smackdown segments. So Al and Jeff talking about croup. Croup's pretty run of the mill, Jan. I'm not really sure what they could argue about. They start out by saying that. What is there to argue about? But I have to say, this was one of the more like tense smackdowns that these two have had that I've heard in a while. And I, I really enjoyed it. Al and Jeff just go after each other, and Eileen's right there in the middle, you know, ringing the bell in the middle of the boxing ring saying, all right, you guys, all right, calm down. But really, you know, Jeff starts with his approach with croup, which is, you know, I hear that barky cough, and I'm going to give him oral steroids, of course, long-acting dexamethasone, 0.3 milligrams per kilo. And then if they have strider or respiratory distress, then I'm going to give them a temporizing measure to buy my time until the steroids kick in, which is, for him, nebulized racemic epi. Well, Al comes in and says, you know, Okay, this is how I do it. I don't do it like that. I do it like that in a way. I give the oral dexamethasone fine, but I also give nebulized dexamethasone because it seems to really work and it helps in that temporizing and it helps relieve the barky cough to some degree. And then he really criticizes Jeff. What are you doing giving racemic epi? That's something we used to do back in the 80s. You only need L-epinephrine, regular old garden variety epinephrine. You don't need that racemic epi. And then they just go after each other. What does the evidence say? There's definitely evidence to support oral steroids. Let's be clear on that. But there's not a lot of evidence to support the combination of nebulized dexamethasone plus oral dexamethasone. Al says, you know, I've been doing it for a long time, and this is more practice-based experience rather than evidence-based, but it's, this is what I see it works. It really helps that barky cough. And then they talk a little bit about the epinephrine portion, but boy, do they go after each other. And Jim, you listen to these segments, and, and I'm like, well, I agree with Jeff on that point. But I agree with Al on that point. And that's why these are so good because they both make really important points that we should be taking home. I agree with Al that I don't think racemic epi is really all that useful. And if you don't have it, don't go getting it. It's not that big a deal. But I also agree with Jeff that I'm not so sure that nebulized steroids really helps that much. So I think it's really important to hear the experiences and why we do things, but also to understand what the underlying evidence is that guides that. And I think they're pretty honest. They're pretty honest that the evidence doesn't really support what they do in certain circumstances, but there's a little bit of that flavor of the art of medicine here too. Is this legal? Our next segment was on testicular torsion with Larry Mellick. Jen, there is nobody who has created more of a career around one thing than Larry has. Larry loves testicular torsion. All right, let me take that back. Larry doesn't love testicular torsion, but he loves lysing some of the dogma around testicular torsion. And honestly, I think that Larry would have a little coat of arms and it would say somewhere in Latin, my job is to save more testicles. Because that is a career that he has created with the research that he has done, such great work that he has put in 
to give us more education on this. And he goes through a number of different dogmatic teaching points, some key points in there that I think we have to take home. The number one, the top one, Larry told me, no matter what else people learn, they have to learn this. The testicle can be salvageable even if the patient has been having pain for more than six hours. There is no time cutoff. Jen, call back to ovarian torsion last month. This is the same thing. There is not a time cutoff that says, oh, the patient's been having pain that long. Can't salvage that testicle. And Larry has data telling us this, that yes, if it's less than six hours, the survival rate is really high. It's 97%. But guess what? Up to 18 hours, the survival rate is still over 50%. So even if the patient comes in and says, oh, I've been having pain since yesterday afternoon, you should still press forward with getting that diagnosis, getting your consultant to the bedside, because you may be able to relieve that torsion and save that testicle. Even if it's not fully functional, you are going to save some function. And that's really important. Larry then from there goes into how severe pain may not be present. Sometimes patients will have pain and then the pain will go away. Or sometimes even if they're torsed, the pain might go away because you don't have all those inflammatory mediators that have created the pain at that site. So we can't always rely on the presence of severe pain or even any pain. And then from there, Larry talks about a new technique for reducing the testicle, the testicular torsion traction technique, which Jan, I had a really hard time saying. I practiced a lot before we did this mega summary. But this is just another approach to reducing the testicle when you think that torsion is there. And Larry says his approach is still to do the regular open book kind of approach. But when that doesn't work or doesn't fully relieve the patient's symptoms, he'll then add the testicular torsion traction technique, where basically you're applying axial traction to the testicle. And just by providing traction, you help to unravel it a little bit, or it makes it easier to unravel that twisted spermatic cord. So of course, Larry has a great video on YouTube. It is free. You can check that out to see how to do this. Not on an actual testicle, Jan, but on a model that he has created so that it is YouTube compliant. But you can pop over there and see Larry's approach for the testicular torsion traction technique. Well, that's fascinating. I love the coat of arms about how his life is to save testicles. There's probably two little testicles on the coat of arms. It should be on the, on the uh, you know, shoulder of his white coat. I love it. This is, you know, these are great pearls. I think that this sounds like a painful procedure, but he talks about analgesia for sure. And, you know, it's these are if you work in a place where you don't have urology right there, which is most of us, this is a great thing to know about because, you know, you got to try something. You feel like you got to do something and to have more, you know, tools in your armamentarium always better. So this was a really great piece. And I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited to know that the way we eat pizza is how you got to look at the brain. Absolutely. Whatever. <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly right. Next up, you talked to Scott Kobner about the rapid neuro exam. Yeah, this is my favorite piece for the month, Jan. Scott and I got to sit down and kind of go through his approach. And, and he's very clear the rapid stroke exam is a screening tool used for our initial decisions about code stroke activation. This is a, a time-limited situation. The patient rolls in, you want to do a complete or, or at least as much of an assessment as you can to decide which way to go, but this is not the final neuro exam. After the patient gets that imaging, if you go down that code stroke pathway, you're going to bring them back and do a full assessment. This is just kind of the rapid that you do in the hallway while everyone's trying to push the patient to CT and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa just, just give me a minute with this patient first. And so he goes through all of these different steps, which sounds long, but I've seen Scott do this. It doesn't take that long. It's a couple of minutes to get a really good cursory exam on the patient as you roll over to CT to then determine, do I need to set all of those wheels in motion? Do I need my neuro team right now? Do I need my neuro interventional team activated as well? And so he goes through the different components. You're looking for cortical signs. You're looking for motor signs. You're looking for sensory signs as well. And then how to interpret that examination. 
based on what you find, how do you know what's actually going on? And then when you get to CT and you get that non-con head CT, that little bit of exam that you've gotten can really advise you on, do I need to go down the route of CTA and perfusion right now? Or is the non-con CT enough? Now I'm going to go back, do a full assessment, talk to neuro. And I think that that's a, a really important point. We shouldn't be getting CTA and CT perfusion on every patient who we think is having a stroke, but this exam gives us the tools to make sure that we get it on the right patients. Yeah, this was super valuable. And as I listen to it, I just think of what I do and I try to take those pearls. And next time I see a patient like this, I'm going to use some of what Scott told me. And, you know, it was just great. This is something we do every single day. Being good at it is definitely part of our job. Kids do the strangest things. <laughs> next up, we had pediatric hair tourniquets. And this was with Gita Pensa and Chris Merritt. And this is a crossover from our new Urgent Care podcast. If you haven't heard it, please check it out. Really good stuff. And these two really get into pediatric hair tourniquets and what you can do about them, how you recognize them and what to do. So, you know, we know these are super common in infants, particularly. And in that baby that comes in, mom brings in, I can't get him to stop crying. I don't know what's wrong. This is one of the things on your differential and you have to go looking for it. You know, it's usually just pain and irritability. That's all that's present, but you have to find it. And so you go looking at the little digits, look at the little fingers, the little toes and in the little privates, you got to take the diaper off. And, you know, and then you find it. When you find it, what do you do about it? And what's, what's really going on here? Well, you know, obviously it's causing pain, but really it's leading to ischemia. It can lead to bony erosion, infection. And often if it's been there for a long time, these longstanding tourniquets can be tough to get off because they may even have some epithelialization that's happened over the tourniquet. And in that case, it's going to be a little bit tough. As I mentioned, the digits are most common. This is most common also in the second to fifth month of life. This is when, and interesting, you think about why, this is when the mom who's postpartum, their hair is kind of coming out because of the hormonal changes. And this is often where it falls onto baby and starts getting wrapped around these little digits because they can't really, they don't know enough to, to get it off their own finger. So it's interesting. There's been also increased reports of babies and children who have cognitive delays so that you might see this in an older child who may have a cognitive impairment. Okay, next was treatment, and they talked about topical depilatory agents. This is like Nair and these kinds of other products. Having these around is super common, or you can send somebody around the corner to the, to the you know, next door little retail pharmacy to get one of these things. And what does the Nair do, or, or what does the depilatory agent do? It dissolves the hair into a gelatinous material that you can then basically just wipe away, but it won't work on other filaments like string, etc. And if you don't have that, what else can you do? They talk about unwinding it with forceps. You could use a hooked scalpel. You may need loops or some kind of magnification to get in there. But you know, even if you can get a little bit free, you could probably unwind from there. And if you can't get it off at all, and you're in an urgent care, for example, or you're in an ER where you don't have other options, you may have to transfer this person somewhere else for more definitive care. If it's in the female genital tract, this happens around the clitoris sometimes, you do not want to use these depilatory agents in those areas. So that's important to know. Don't use them on mucosal surfaces. And this may be, again, a place where you have a low threshold for transfer. So great piece, really useful. I haven't seen one of these in a while, but you know, when you find one, you really want to know what to do. Absolutely. And our Urgent Care podcast has such great tips and tricks on these kind of things, which we see all the time in the emergency room. It just hasn't happened in the urgent care. We have to be ready for all of these things. And Jen, I've never worked in a peds emergency department that didn't have Nair. I remember the first time I walked in, I saw the Nair on the shelf and I'm like, what are you guys doing here? And then somebody explained what the use is, but I've never worked anywhere that doesn't have this because 
when these patients come in, it really is the cure and it fixes it so fast. It's such a quick kind of fix situation, but you just got to have the right agent. Unfortunately, you can't really order Nair or a depilatory agent in your EMR. So um, you're just going to have to make sure that you got a little bit of this hanging around just in case these patients come in. Cardiology Corner. With your host, Dr. Amol Matu. And Jan, that brings us to our final segment of the month. One of your favorites, which was the Cardiology Corner, talking about recurrent low-risk chest pain with Amol. And we go through the GRACE guidelines, which is published in Academic Emergency Medicine last year. And it really gets through six or seven different topics about low-risk chest pain and how we can be treating these patients properly. It starts by defining low-risk chest pain, which I think is actually really useful. It says that low-risk chest pain is defined by using an accelerated diagnostic protocol, one of these ADPs like the heart pathway or EDACs. And that accelerated diagnostic protocol risk stratifies the patient to a less than 1% chance of a major adverse cardiac event within 30 days. So we're starting from that point and saying, okay, I've got this patient. They've had recurrent presentations for low-risk chest pain. They are low risk as defined by one of these ADPs. Now, what do I do? And then they get into the, all of these different questions. Number one is looking at, can we actually risk stratify these patients further with a single high sensitivity troponin? They talk about what situations we can just use one troponin and we don't have to get serial, but a lot of this relies on what generation of troponin you actually have in your shop, whether you have the high sensitivity or one of the more traditional ones. From there, they talk a lot about the provocative testing that we often get for these patients. So we got the low-risk chest pain patient, we get a couple of tropes, we put them in OBS, and then they get some kind of provocative testing, whether that be a stress test or a stress echo or a CCTA. And these guidelines go through exactly how to think about those tests. That if you have low-risk chest pain and a non-diagnostic normal stress test within 12 months, you probably don't need to get one again in the hospital. If you have low-risk chest pain and a negative cardiac cath within the last five years, you probably shouldn't be getting a stress test because you've already got a negative cath pretty recently. They go through the CCTA. If you've got low-risk chest pain and a negative CCTA within the last two years, you probably don't need another one, although a little bit of that is going to be defined on what it means to have a negative CCTA. Is it truly negative, like calcium score zero, or is it kind of positive but not positive enough to do anything about that's going to guide this as well. So we go through all of those different recommendations. A lot of this gen comes down to if they've had recent provocative testing, you might not need to keep them for more provocative testing. There might not be much of a benefit. And instead, what you really should be doing is making sure that the patient has proper follow-up, proper outpatient assessment. And the last two things, Jen, which I think are really important, first time we're seeing these really in an emergency guideline, talking about the fact that in patients with recurrent low-risk chest pain, Anxiety and depression might be part of the issue here. And while we don't want to just chalk everything up to anxiety and depression, we also should recognize that those are important factors in patients' representation, and we should be actively involved in referring patients who we think anxiety and depression might be part of this to the right resources. Yeah, that last part is really important. Of course, you rule out everything. Of course, the first part of the conversation is clearly what we need to be thinking about, but you do see these patients who keep we're currently coming back. They're still low risk. There's still nothing high risk about them, but they're still having chest pain. They're still having chest pain. You've got to dig deeper. You've got to ask the questions. What's going on at home? What else is going on in your life? Is there stress? I've seen women, for example, come in with recurrent chest pain who break down crying, talking about how much stress they're under at home and their, you know, their son this, their daughter that. You just have to kind of dig down to get to it. And sometimes you really do figure out why they're having this chest pain over and over again. 
Again, it's obviously a diagnosis of exclusion and we think about everything else, but getting to that point could really, really help them. So I love that we finally said it out loud that this can happen. It is a thing and we could look for it. And instead of getting frustrated with those patients, this is the next thing for us to do is to ask those questions. I've had a couple of residents catch patients who had intimate partner violence and they were representing because it was a safe place for them to come to, but they weren't saying anything about intimate partner violence until it was asked. And so we do have to think, what else could be at play here? What else could I do? And ultimately, Jen, you're helping yourself too, because if we help these patients, they won't keep coming back to the emergency department with low-risk chest pain. They'll actually find the right route. So we have to think about this. And I really give a lot of credit to the people who put together these GRACE guidelines for recognizing that this is an important piece of it. They don't say outright that this should be our job and we should be going full court press, which is really hard because we don't all have the resources to make this happen. But it's something for us to think about, especially when you do have the appropriate resources. And that is March, my friends. That was chock full of good information. And I really enjoyed doing this as always, Swami. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. So much good stuff. I hope everyone out there has a great March. I hope that all of the pediatric febrile illnesses that have slammed us over the last six months are starting to wane, that you are starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, that the buds are coming up, that the weather is getting a little bit warmer. And Jan, we will see all of you back in April. Yep. And don't forget what you do really matters. And we're thankful for all of you. Next time on MRAP. There are tendons and bony structures that are limiting the space inside of the orbit. All we could see across the epigastrium was a large, almost rectangular structure that was mostly obscured by intestinal gas. So it comes out that there's one study in 1969 that says that uh, healthy volunteers who received TXA felt orthostatic. There's a correlation with cardiac and catecholamine effects on the heart with all of the neurocritically ill patients that we see. It is a gamble we all take, but it's a gamble we all occasionally lose. 